so you're in Puerto Rico now? Well, so yeah, that's a long story, man. Um, so I've been here for three or four months. I have a house here. Me and my wife have a house here. I don't, we're not really certain like how much time we're going to spend here. Honestly, uh, Chris, I mean, I have family here. One of my brothers lives here. Um, so, and he's got, he's got kids the same age as my kiddos. And, uh, so we've just been kind of having fun and, and spending the winter down here, but we're, we're a little bit in flux, man. You know how that goes. hundred percent. Yeah. No, I, for some reason I thought you were Belize. I, I thought you would. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't, I, I missed the Puerto Rico thing, but no, I, that whole, it's not a bad place to, oh, sorry. It's not a bad yeah, place. Either, either spots, either spots, not bad, man. No. No, and I'm I'm watching and I'm watching you with jealousy because you know it, it's one of those things. My wife, so good lord, there's a lot here, but um, sure we so we wildlife biologists. You have the Wildlife Society, professional organization for wildlife biologists and managers. Blah blah blah. Of course, like all professional societies, they'll have their annual meetings in places, right? And okay. so they had one year they had their annual meeting the first week of November in Hawaii. Well. When I was younger, I was I was not doing a lot of whitetail stuff. So, like an idiot, we get married November seventh, right? Like like yeah, prime yeah. rut for white. <laughs> so now that I'm doing whitetail stuff, our our anniversary every year is just trash because I've got hunters here, and it's like the zone, like it's the oh, time, right. right? So all of a sudden, it's the first week of November. She's like, we've got the wild the wildlife society meetings coming up, and she sat on the certification board. Um, so she's like, well, we're going, I'm like, we, who like, like I'm not going to Hawaii the first week of November. Like, what are you talking about? I've got whitetail stuff. She's like, no, we're going. So it was kind of like this little, we, I went, okay. Obviously. So I get to Hawaii and I love snorkeling anyway. We've been down to BVI a couple of times and, and grand Grand Caymans. I love snorkeling and diving. Um, so we get out there and, and, it, I mean, it didn't suck. Hawaii doesn't suck. Right. So right. Um, we're out there snorkeling and everything else and we're having a good time. And, and she, she mentioned something. I don't remember how we got on the, on the subject, but she's like, you know, it's fun, but I could see you, you couldn't live here. And I'm like, like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, <laughs> you, you, it would drive you nuts to me. Cause you don't have your hunting in some, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. number one. Yeah. Hawaii's got a lot of decent hunting. Like I, I could sure. get, I could get behind some of the, of the goats and the, the axis deer and, and the turkey stuff in there. I there's, there's, there's land based oh, yeah. hunting we could do, but me, dude, if I spent any significant amount of time where I could get into spear fishing, sure. I'd be, it'd be old. It's underwater bow hunting. Like yeah, it's yeah. underwater, underwater bow hunting in South Africa, where it's like, you've got, You've got 50 different species to choose from. Just go. It's like, I, I would lose yeah, yeah. myself. I would, I would, yeah. I'd be done. So I'm watching your stuff out there. And and just like today, you're, you're casting that and getting some bait and, and going fishing and stuff. Um, and you made the comment about, you know, catching tarpon. Some, you know, your kids, they're, they're catching the sure. younger tarpon now, but you'll be catching bait. I kind of like the, the smaller ones, the, the oh, yeah. smaller tarpon. I mean, cause they're fun as hell and you can catch a bunch of them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like you tie into one big one and you're going to be there a while, but yeah, yeah, you can, sure. you can tie like all of the baby ones are still bigger than most of what you're going to catch in like oh, the, yeah. the United States. So it's still a bigger fish than you're used to catching anyway, but yeah, they're now, crazy. Yeah. Now you fight them for five, 10, five, 10, maybe 15 minutes. And then you bring and, and it's just, you go do another one. 
and then another one yeah. and then another one and another. So yeah, I don't, I I'm jealous. So are you planning? Yeah. So I guess, hell, I haven't even done the introduction. Let's just pause this. Let's just, let me do the introduction <laughs> and then we'll continue. It's fair enough. We're, the thing is we're going to have to come back to some of those, those topics, man. Cause I think they're interesting to talk about in like the context of being into hunting or whatever. So oh, yeah, no, no, no. We'll, we'll let, let me, let me just pause. Let's just do the introduction. And then we'll just jump right back in. Yeah, sounds good, man. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Row Hunting Resources Podcast. All right. Today, I have Cliff Gray. And I guess, Cliff, you're now operating on Pursuits, Pursuit with Cliff? Yeah, that's just the, the kind of new business name that I use, Pursuit with Cliff. And that's my website, Pursuit with Cliff. And, but, and a lot of my kind of main focus lately, really, Chris, has been my YouTube channel um, okay. and, and my newsletter and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the main business I've been working on lately. All right, so because that, that's where I was going to go. You've got a great YouTube channel. You got a whole pile of information on there. Thanks, man. Give, uh, I, I guess, since this is the first time you've been on this podcast, give everybody a real quick rundown of who you, like, a, a five-minute spiel of who you are, where, where, who you are, like, where, where did you come from? What were you doing? Now, where are you? Like, type of deal. Yeah. So I guess we'll just we'll go back. Uh, I don't know, 10, 12 years, Chris, and I think that's probably the most uh, interesting to your viewers. So I ran Flat Tops Wilderness Guides in the, it would be the southeast section of the actual wilderness area of the Flat Tops. And I uh, ran that business for basically a decade, a little bit short of, short of a decade. And then I ran it one more year for the folks that bought it uh, for me. And I kind of, through that period of time, I built it up. Our primary business was elk, but we also did a fair amount of sheep and goat hunting in some other areas. And I developed some permitting in other areas and, and got into that. But my core business was elk and really like the whole wilderness deal. So pack and hunts, horse and mule pack and hunts out of wall tents. That was kind of our, our main thing. And then towards the end of it, we actually got, you know, I guess fairly high volume in the bear hunting and that sort of thing too, just because there was a lot of opportunity there uh, for folks. But so I did that for essentially 10 years, it, at least from my my perspective, I think I, I built up a pretty cool business. It was a lot of fun and it had its you know own challenges and, and that sort of thing. And I'll be, you know, I, to be transparent with folks, I actually like that component of outfitting maybe as much as just the hunting and the outdoors part. Like that's super, super important part of it for me also is just to be in the outdoors. I, I grew up in a rural area. My dad was a cattle rancher. Um, so I always enjoyed the outdoors, always enjoyed hunting, but I also enjoyed being an entrepreneur and building up a business. So that was a big component of it. And I had a blast doing that. I think I built out an awesome team of guys and, and those guys now are still running that business. And they've actually, just in the last 18 months of me not being around, they've actually acquired a couple other outfitting businesses. So, which is cool, man, because, you know, it, it's funny because people, I think when they, people think when you sell a business, like you almost want the legacy to be that you made it awesome and that other people are not going to do it as good as you did it. And I actually feel the opposite. Like the last thing I wanted from that business was for it to fall apart and, you know, there to be issues. And so for me, I think it was, it was probably maybe subconscious, but it was part of the reason I sold it. I had a good team there when I sold it and I knew they could kind of handle it. And uh, it's been awesome to see them keep doing their thing. So, okay. So why did you sell? And then what, where, what you sold? And so what are you trans transitioning into next? 
Yeah, man. So that's that's a valid uh, question, Chris. And I think I don't think I have a totally completely clear answer. So I'll start on the first part: why I sold, and and I had you know several kind of personal things going on, but I think a big part of it was a lot of what I just said, and that's the the business component of it. To me, was was pretty maxed out. I mean, I so so just so people understand these. Essentially, when you buy an outfitting business, a big part of it is the permitting. And then sometimes you can develop that permitting. Go ahead, Chris. When you're dealing with public lands, correct. Because, I mean, correct. somebody could have a big, massive, massive ranch or, or, or lease a bunch of private ground. That's a whole different ball of wax, especially in Colorado, because Colorado yeah, yeah. regulates. You have not only do you have Forest Service or BLM, like federal public land regulation and permitting. But in Colorado, a lot of people don't realize you also have regulations that you have to go through Department of Regulatory Affairs at the state level. So so the state of Colorado right. has to, you have to get a permit from them, from the state, just to be able to do it. And then wherever you're going to be on federal public land, you've also got to get the permits for the federal public land. So it's, it's a, in Colorado, at least, it's a two-tier type of deal. So I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, that. no, it's a it's a great point, Chris, because I I really consider them two different businesses completely. Really, you know, if you're if you're and, and I'm and I in I'm not saying one's better than the other or anything like that, but they're from a like what is actually involved in in the business and actually to some extent what you're providing to the end customer is completely different in the two businesses. From my perspective, if you know, if you if you're leasing up big ranches or you're managing big ranches and you're and you have commercial hunting there, a lot of what you're selling to the hunter is obviously the experience and accommodations and all of that. But a lot of what you're selling is access, right? So I really wasn't in that business. I was more in the business of in you know the way I viewed it was a service provider on federal lands, and that, that was. I mean, not to get into the nitty gritty detail, but that was probably 90% of my business. I did do, I did have some small places leased where we did some private hunting, but 90% of it was on, on Fred, either forest, some, a little bit of BLM and mostly in the wilderness area. So a so, big part of my, yeah, go ahead, Chris. No, no, sorry. I didn't mean it. Cause, cause that's the thing is where you were, it, it, it correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I, you are, you are operating. I've, I know about the area of where you're talking, flat tops and west and, and all that and down towards Grand Mesa sure. and all that, but I've never played in that area. So I know some, oh, okay. and, and we're going to get into the limited draw units and what's new, what's not, and, and that type of stuff here in, you know, later on is in this discussion, but you were in an over-the-counter unit, right? Yeah. So, okay. so I was in, go ahead. Yeah. So the, the point there is, when you're so two, there's two other things that I just thought of that people may not understand. Like I'm, I'm still a licensed guide for Arizona in Arizona. I can guide anywhere in the state. Like there is no other than getting my certificate from the state that says yes. And, and getting my license, I can guide anywhere in the state at any time. Yep. All I, all I'm doing is going with a hunter. And so my, my unit is the hunter and then we can just go wherever the heck we want to. Now, as soon as like if someone's in unit one or nine or 10 or whatever, or seven West or whatever like that, I have to go to that local forest service office and I have to get a special use permit from them, but I can go anywhere for right. Colorado. You're it's almost like South. It's it's almost like Canada where you, you have like a little concession, like Cliff Gray 
you're licensed in Colorado, but when you're in your outfitting area, the Forest Service permits you a, a, a defined area, correct? Yeah. So, so yeah, yes and no, Chris. So, so in general, Colorado is ran in the individual ranger districts, pretty much what you, what you just, how you described it. We have our own rough regions, you know, there's not towards the end of my outfitting. They, I think they really moved towards defining those exactly, um, which has its, uh, and we can talk about this if you want to get in the nitty gritty because I don't think people really understand the complexity of it. But Go that has its that has its challenges because if you have defined areas and they go through, say, a sheep unit, right? They split a sheep unit. Well, if I'm guiding a sheep hunter, I want to take them to the you know I need to guide them in the whole unit. So there's all these different different uh, issues that that arise on you know, what's best, you know, let's avoid conflict between outfitters by defining areas, but then there's this other issue. So there's all these different issues. And and when I outfitted, I was fairly involved in that discussion. And I think if I was being completely honest, Chris, this subject matter, you know, dealing with the federal government uh, within the context of working with them uh, was probably uh, you know, in my mind, I don't think it's what ran me out of the business, but it probably was part of it. It, yeah. it just just the bureaucracy of dealing with with the federal government and not necessarily I felt like I had a very good working relationship with them. Like my you know, the guys that managed my permits were reasonable people. I didn't have you know, I would call them my friends. There was no animosity about it. But just, you know, it once you grow a business, any business to a certain size and then you can't grow it anymore. Um and that, that, that can mean a lot of different things in the outfitting business. But if you can't grow it anymore, I think in like a, you know, an entrepreneur's mind or, or just somebody who's wanting to always do something, maybe I got a mental problem or something, man, but I wanted to do more. And I, want, I thought there was opportunities to provide more services across Colorado. So I actually was like constantly pushing on that. And it takes a very long time for that to change. Um, and, and just, you know, working, working through it. So I think that was a little frustrating, uh, to me, but the reason I kind of get off on this, uh, on this subject is it's, it's mixed, man, because I, the vast majority of outfitters in Colorado, Idaho, uh, probably Wyoming, Idaho, uh, or excuse me, Wyoming, Montana also, they kind of like these defined areas. You know what I mean? They kind of prefer to, to not have to compete with other folks. And then there's also kind of some in, intrinsic asset value in, in the permits because they're kind of exclusive areas, right? Legally, they're not at all. You know, they, they're not, I mean, if you read a, if you read a outfitting permit, there's no, an outfitter does not own an area uh, at, by any means. It, now an outfitter in British Columbia if you read those documents, I've read a bunch of them um, over the years, they're legally a, much closer to property. When you think of outfitting permits in Colorado, yeah, do they give you a little exclusivity? Yes, but they're not really ex like an asset in a sense that way, but they do tend to transact that way when you buy them. They're kind of, you know, you got permits and they're, you know, they may adjust a little bit, but that's kind of the space within you're going to work, you're, you're going to work in. And I actually had a fair amount of conflict, not a fair amount of conflict. I think it was all cordial, but within the outfitting community, I, I was probably, um, 
maybe one of the few got the few individuals that wanted a little more open competition amongst outfitting. I actually thought it would would have been a good thing for the business. Um, but we could honestly, Chris, we could talk for five hours about it, man. No, and, and, and no, I, I, and you know me. If you follow my stuff, yeah. <laughs> seven hours later, I'll be like, all right, cool. I got to go to bed. Let's pick this up in the morning. Um, the the thing is, is so okay. For, so for most of the people that are going to listen to me, it's going to be mostly focused on elk. Yeah. And then maybe there's going to be a little overlap on some of the folks that are deer. Maybe there's some little overlap on moose. I don't have a huge following of sheep and that type of stuff. So sure. for efficiency of time, let's focus just kind of around, let's just focus on elk for now. And then we we can assume that maybe there's a little overlap with the deer side and there's a little overlap with maybe some moose side. And yeah, understanding moose areas, et cetera. But game management units are deer and elk. Moose is, you know, the, anyway. Yep. So what you're saying, I always was under the impression that when you got a forest service permit to guide in Colorado, you were, you had, basically it was a special use permit for a, for a, 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 a line on a map for elk and deer. Is that not real? It's, it's, are they, so what, if I'm understanding you correctly, the forest service is going to say, okay, we're not going to stick 10 guys on the same spot of the map. So if you want right. to operate here and you want to kind of op- operate over there and you operate over here, that, that'll be good. But you guys can overlap. Like how significantly yeah. can you overlap? I just, it depends on the ranger district, Chris. So, so yes. Okay. And this, right. this is what I think, I think this is actually uh, like a bit, like an interesting subject because you have the foresters and they're a federal, uh, a, you know, they're, they're a federal group, right? But so first you have this interesting dynamic that the Forest Service in Wyoming may operate completely different than it does in Colorado. And then actually within Colorado, you know, you could have the so I actually had permits technically in two different for in two different forests. I had them in the White River and then I had them at a Meeker. And I, I don't know. I'm just I'm losing my mind because I can't remember what the what they call the forest over there. But those two permits are administered a little bit different. So, in like, if we want to focus in on the, you know, the uh, the, it'd be like the Holy Cross Ranger District there in the in the Vale Valley. That that er, that area might well they do manage everything a little bit different because they have the ski resorts, right? And so a lot of that office is obvious is is going to be focused on that like they're not really you know the hunting component of it or even any of the other recreational stuff going on that forest in a sense it it doesn't even matter it, right. it's irrelevant because they it, have veil they have veil, right it's, inc- it's incidental based on given all the other stuff that they're dealing with yeah yeah but if you go over on the other side of the flat tops at a meeker it's all about hunting because yeah. that's that's the dynamic there. So even though these are broader agencies, how the forest is managed in each location is actually drastically different. Yeah, Does that make no. sense. Oh, yeah, hundred percent. And I'm glad you made that that distinction because that's the thing that, as a habitat guy, that just drives me absolutely batshit crazy about. Yeah, sure. You, you you look at how well, and I'm sure everybody can. You know, anybody that's familiar with Arizona, you can have your complaints with Kaibab or Coconino National Forest all you want. They right. do a freaking phenomenal job at how they run the forest and how they manage the forest with, you know, 
habitat and and prescribed burns and and I mean they are on it and and literally the Kaibab National Forest has been a benchmark for forest management since hell I started like probably the 80s and the early 90s so then you go to Colorado and you watch what some what what's going on there and I don't think people truly understand what you're getting at I mean it, it can even go and in, in my experience in Colorado is just from a basic quasi recreational filming permit like from for my stuff like I want to go up and I want to film my elk hunt and then I want to be able to use that elk that that footage for part of my business well technically I'm supposed yeah. to have a filming permit I can go like I had a great relationship with the lady that was running that program in the White River National Forest because I did used to do a lot of hunting around the Minturn area from sure, Leadville sure. up to Minturn and Holy Cross and all that type of stuff Back in the yeah. day, I had a great relationship with the lady who ran that, and yeah. it, it, it was it was it was easy. And then I'd go over to Pike National Forest. Good Lord, like like I was, I'm not okay. I'm not Ford. I'm like Dodge. I'm not coming up with a film crew in six helicopters, right. twenty seven guys. I'm like I'm I'm walking around with a little freaking video camera. I'm like no no, it's gonna have to be this much. Per, it's like. You're the the amount of autonomy individual forests have is incredible. Yeah. Whoever whoever is in charge of that is going to set the culture. And I always am talking about value sets constantly these days. The individual who is in charge of that, that forest is going to set the tone for the culture of everyone underneath them. And they it can be wildly different oh, from yeah. one forest to the next to BLM to the I mean so I understand what you're talking about as far as the bureaucracy especially Colorado because did you ever cross paths with Garth Peterson? Uh yeah yeah I don't I don't I don't know Garth real well but right, I, so I know him yeah I I worked for him for a season up in the Raywas and and I remember him just just pulling his hair out um because you know they would set standards of what you need to do to have in your backcountry, you know, wall tent camp. And, you know, he decided one year, he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to bring up composting toilets. I'm going to pack them up into the wilderness there and I'll have a multiple composting toilets, which is well beyond what the forest service required at the time. Sure. And so he's like, I'm going to do a good thing. And I, and I, and I'm going to buy myself, essentially buy myself. I'm going to, I'm going to give myself some good graces. I'm going to get a little check mark in the box with the forest service. They're like, Oh, this guy's good. This guy's doing great things. And it'll help me go, you know, help things go better in the future. No, he, he goes in and does the composting toilets. And the next year when they go up and, and look at everything, it basically like, Oh, well, that's good that you did that. Well, now that you did that, we're going to push you. For, now you need to do exit. You know, you got to go in yeah. you know, the next step. And he's like, like, what the heck? Like, they, it just really seemed at the time, it almost seemed like the individual who was in charge really didn't like hunting and didn't like the outfitters up there. To, and so I'm just going to make it as much as difficult for you as possible. And it just, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, especially nowadays when we get our federal agencies and people that are getting involved with, with wildlife and we're going to hopefully get to this. I don't care if we do or yeah, not. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. Um, we're getting into this woke culture. And we're getting into the people that are more and more removed from the consumptive use lifestyle or even the consumptive use value set, even though they are mandated 
mandated air quotes to manage for multiple use. That doesn't mean right. they have to value all those multiple uses equally. And they have individual forest discretion on what they're going to focus on and then how they're going to implement some of these things. So, no, I, I hear you, man. I, I can imagine that it started just getting to the point where it's like, if you're limited, because that's the other thing too, with it, and people need to understand is an outfitter or guide in an over-the-counter unit. You're taking people up. Now, granted, if you're running and you were, you were taking horses back up and you're going way back, back up in. But people need to understand as well. Like, Cliff, you were probably taking guys up in on one year and you just showed them the entire area. You just showed them where all the elk were. You just showed them where all the deer were. Well, there's nothing to stop them from next year bringing all their buddies and coming right up the same trail, coming right up and and literally providing additional competition for you and your next series right. of clients. So it's like on on public land, over the counter unit public land. Being an outfitter is is exactly what you're talking about. You, you have to provide a value added service. It's not about can I? It's you want to put an animal on the ground, but at that right. point, it's what else am I providing you? Like what, what other experience am I giving you that, that justifies you paying several thousand dollars to, yeah, to yeah. For me to take you up on the mountain on a horse? Yeah, no, for sure. And that's in, I think that's like the kind of non-sexy part of the business that, that folks don't really, really think about. And that's when I look at my outfitting business, Chris, it was 70% of logistics and kind of like logistics and accommodation business and really a packing business. Like the horse, the horse component of the business is huge. And that's really where a lot of the added value is. Cause I'm basically, you know, helping people get into areas that would otherwise be fairly difficult to get into and, and have an enjoyable hunt or whatever. So I did in, in it, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I didn't have, yeah. Did I have people come back and compete with my own clients at time? Yeah. I had that a little bit, but it wasn't that significant. And I think it was because of that. It's just really the business was a lot about just providing the logistics to help people out. And that that's, you know, just a big chunk of it. I don't think people really realize, you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. you know, the, the component of it that particularly on the guided hunting, like the component of the guided hunt, that's really about the guide and, you know, his knowledge base and skill set. that is a thing and it's important but it's it's actually probably a smaller chunk of what we're providing versus the logistics, you know. No, no, so, un absolutely yeah. understood. So for for you, all right. So when we're talking, so when we're talking about this, what unit? Yep. What for elk? Let's just like again, elk, deer, and we can we can tease into some moose here in a minute because I yep. think it's going to be relevant. And yeah, now, okay, yeah, all right, sorry, 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 sorry. We're jumping ahead because. <laughs> The other thing that you're doing, so you sold the business, yep. you're, you're kind of a free agent right now. You're putting a lot of effort into your YouTube channel. What's the YouTube channel? Yeah, it's just my name. So if okay. you go Cliff on YouTube, yep, you okay, Google, so if you if you type it in there, you'll it'll pop right up. All right. And you've got a bunch of stuff going on over there. And now the other yeah. thing too is, Jay has you doing all the heavy lifting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you have... Now I know you and Jay Scott have been friends for a while, and sure. but you've started doing a hell of a lot of the guest host podcast work on Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. So you've been running a bunch of conversations lately on sure. his platform 
which there's been a bunch of different good conversations. The 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 last two that I've been privy to have been talking about you've you've interviewed those guys that I'm guessing the last one that you just posted here what yesterday or whatever or today. Yeah. Um is that one of your quote unquote business yeah, so, partners or they they bought is it Yeah, so I so bought? I just I just posted one today that is that's from the and that was an interview with Jimmy Oswald and yes. our I think Jay might have posted last night. So is that the one you're talking about? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So so Jimmy was like my main one of my main employees, and now he's running the businesses. Okay. The the um the one I interviewed before that, Ryan McSparent, he owns Budges, which is another big flat tops permit off there. It was a little bit to the west of me. Excellent. Um, and the and yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. No, because this yeah. is this is why I wanted you have you on here. Because okay, so. That kind of gives people a little bit of an idea, and and then we're we were joking and we're farting around in the beginning about the fact that you're spending the winter down in Puerto Rico with your family and just living the life of a of a beach bum down there and fishing and and having a great time, which I'm jealous of. Um, so, <laughs> the, but the reason why I wanted to have you on is because you've spent a lot, number one, you've spent a lot of time in this in this area up in the flat now. Again, focusing deer, elk, maybe a little bit. What units are you intimately aware of up in that yeah. area? So 25, 26, and then the south, the south side of 24. So like the it'd be like the the east and the south of 24. Like kind of the most remote headwater part of 24. Okay. And then so is it Jimmy Oswald? Jimmy? Yeah, Jimmy. Okay, so they're they're operate now. He just said that he they they just uh, uh acquired a bunch of ground or uh, at least a, uh, some outfitting stuff that's down towards the Leadville area, right? Yeah. Did I understand and, that and, correctly? Yeah, and we and the reality is of that is that we did a lot of Jimmy and I guided a lot along Leadville, Buena Vista, and that was almost all sheep and goats. Okay. All right. Um, so not the, not the deer and yeah. elk side, but the sheep and yeah. goat. Okay. Yeah. And we did it. We did, we kind of, we were, we were working for them a bunch. And then after I left, they ended up buying that business. I see. Okay. And the interview that you had previous to Jimmy was with who? Uh, Ryan McSparren and Ryan, Ryan, um, he's actually, he's worked in the flat tops for like 15 years really good guy. And he bought budges the year before I left and budges is a big, it's actually a lodge that's essentially in the middle of the flat tops. It's been there. It's got a bunch of cool history, but he bought it, bought it, I think two years ago now and he's been fixing it up. Okay. And he's, he's in 24. Excellent. All right. How long has 24 been a limited draw unit? So it, it's been a limit. I, I don't know the exact date, but I, I want to say it's at least been eight or nine years. Okay. So a little while, a little while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Because we just saw, I say we just saw, Colorado saw. So now, so you've got 12, 23, 24, and 33. That, that group of units east of Meeker that go right into the, from Meeker east into the flat tops. Yep. Those units are limited draw. Correct. But you got 34, 25, 26, 35. That's all over the counter still. Correct. Okay. 
And this year, the CPW just made 42, 421, 41, 411, 52, and 521, net, which is all south of you, of your area. That's all now just gone to limited draw for archery. Right. So here's what I want to, I, I, I want to, I want to tackle a couple of things because I've been on the, I'm, I've had, I, I've, my last two podcasts, I've kind of shat on Colorado. All right. So it's, it's <laughs> it sounds like doom and gloom. And I think it, is, unfortunately, I think it is based on what's yeah, going to sure. happen with the wolf reintroduction based on a, how it's, how it's been set up in state legislature on 33, 2-105.8. It, I mean, that, the, the state statute and what they're asking for and what they're driving at is detriment. I mean, it's, it's devastating. And yeah. then to see the wildlife commission and the current makeup and the direction of it, uh, Colorado is in, in for, it, Colorado ungulate management is in for a world of hurt. Yeah. Um, yep. And so, just so you know, just so you know, Chris, for, for context, I've, I've listened, I think to, to the last two year episodes, I've listened to like 95% of them. So just, okay. just, just so you know, on that front. So, so you can call me full of shit at any moment, but no, that's um, all good. Um, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic. Um, sure, sure. and I, it just saddens me because I think, I mean, Colorado at this point right now is, and I, and I, we, there's so many rabbit holes. I'm going to try to stay focused. Yeah, um, that's all good. The, the resident hunters. I used to be a resident. I understand that people get frustrated with the number of non-resident hunters that come into the state of Colorado. But when you look at a landscape, a United States scale um, impact for elk hunting, Colorado is like, I think, the foundation state for so many people to get into elk hunting, cut their teeth on elk hunting, to engage in elk hunting on a routine basis. Like it's a it's a foundational state for elk hunting in the West. And I, and again, I'm not gonna yeah, yeah. for for the resident hunters, I, I understand it, it becomes egregious. It becomes unwieldy. Uh you know unit 80 and 81 went limited draw last year or the year before or whatever it was. And According to the CPW, I think they said 68%. So is it 68 or 70? I don't remember now. Like 68% of the archery elk hunters in the units were non-resident. So right. I, I completely understand, and most of those were out of Texas. I, I completely understand the the resident consternation with so many non-resident hunters in the state. However, also you have to understand this is the this is the place that I think props up the bulk of Western elk hunting, Western public lands elk hunting, and yeah, we're and and that foundation has now been cracked, and I think what's going to happen over these next five plus years is the complete dismantling of it, to where right. I I think the ripple effect. That it's going to happen across elk hunt, uh, across the West, and especially elk hunting across the West, is going to be massive. I pray that I am hoping I'm wrong. I really do. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, what I would, what in that thing, I would expand on that. The way I think about it, Chris is so. I think you're completely correct that you know 
Colorado elk hunting is what exposes a lot of people to Western hunting. It's like where they get started. But what I've noticed just from my analytical brain analyzing the hunting business, the hunting industry, elk hunting is, I mean, when you really look at like, you know, who's buying Kuyu, who's buying Kafaru, who's all the, the stuff that's being sold in this industry, 95 plus percent of the market is elk hunters. 100%. It, it, I, I know for sure it is just, just cause my, I'm just a dork about that stuff, man. Like looking at all the data, I don't think people realize like, it's like the crux of all Western hunting, like right. and, and, you know, mule deers right next, you know, right next to it, elk hunting, mule deer, everything else from a, from like a statistical standpoint, doesn't even matter. Like right. goat hunting, sheep hunting, all that, that's all little auxiliary hunting to the space that's really driven by elk hunting in, in the West. But so I right. totally agree, man. Right. I mean, so we are, you know, I, I mentioned it in, in my last one, you know, in the Obama era, you know, he, I mean, he, he was unabashed about the fact that we are on, you know, we are at the cusp where we, we, we have an opportunity now to fundamentally transform America. And, you know, everybody was like, yay, that's the greatest thing, you know, but okay, but let's, let's go through what did you actually just say? And what is it that you actually believe in? And it was, it was about, we're going to fundamentally transform it into something that it, something completely else. You look right. at, at the public comment and you look at the people that are driving the wolf uh, reintroduction and management uh, effort here. That's, that's literally what it is. We are going to, we are going to create wildlife slash ungulate management in our image. Like we are going to fundamentally transform the North American model of wildlife conservation and management in Colorado. And we're going to use this as the benchmark of what we, what we believe can be done. I mean, they have no value for the North American model, the consumptive use model. And right. I, mean, I, I went into all that type of stuff. So sure. it's, it's going to be a fundamental transformation that is going to impact the ripple effects of it are going to be massive. Okay. So here's what I would like to do on this one. Rather than just be doom and gloom on all of it. Yeah. yeah. What, what I would like, what I'm curious about from, and, and maybe it's still a, a lesser degree of doom and gloom. I'm curious from your perspective, having the years that you had, because again, the reason why 12, 23, 24, and 33 went limited draw back in the day because just the, the amount of people that were, were coming and hunting there. I can't believe that, well, I, I, yes, I, I can and I can't. Well, all right. We're, pause. We are, Colorado is seeing because of the demand of elk hunting, just, just the demand, especially of archery. Mm-hmm. We are seeing more and more over-the-counter units going limited draw. Yeah. Not only because of harvest and and the agency trying to manage ungulate take from hunter harvest, but also hunter crowding issues and the right. decrease, you know, the supposed de- now I don't I don't mean I'm not saying supposed because I'm diminish diminishing it, but you know, perception is not always reality. So People, the per- perception is there's more and more people on the landscape. It's it's less and less. It, I, I have more and more conflict or I, I see more people, so I don't like it, blah, blah. Hunter satisfaction is going down. So they have to manage for both. They, they're, they're trying to manage for hunter satisfaction, but they're also trying to manage ungulate harvest. 
And I think part right, of the right. reason why, and you correct me, I, I maybe, but what I heard partly for the making of 42, 421, 41, 411, 52, 51, 521, that chunk going to limited draw now was A, Hunter crowding, but B, also apparently they had a real, they had a couple of years of real high cow elk harvest. Are you familiar with any of that or, or not? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with with those that are okay. that those units, honestly, Chris. Okay. okay. No, no, no worries. I was just kind of curious. Yeah. So it sounds like there's it's dual purpose on why those areas went to limited sure. draw, but this is just one more domino that just keeps falling. And and I've talked with Aaron uh, about, I just really don't see a future in over the counter hunting long-term. I, I think, yeah. go ahead. Well, no, one thing I was going to say, and I'm sure you're going to get there, uh, Chris, is that the one thing is like once that once they start to take these units to over the counter, you just get substitution, right? So you get more. I, the last few years that I was outfitting, particularly in 25, you get you started to get a lot more archers there because they were just coming out of units that were over that used to be over the counter, you know, like even just right across the highway. Guys are hunting, you know, 44, you know, in that country and there. 45, it goes. Yep. It goes draw, and so now they're just hunting on the other side of the highway. So, so you get substitution. So the quality component of the hunts, it just it's like a little landslide, right? Like you draw, draw, you know, you just start going draw. Then they're all going to have to eventually go draw. I think, or, or I mean, yeah, because I mean, all you're doing is kicking the can down the road. Yeah, and it's right. the same can. Like all you, right. the can sits here, and everybody's uh, grumpy about the can, so they kick the can over there. Well, now everybody's like, "Oh, I'm, I'm a little bit less." Well, the can just moved. Like right. it's the same can of 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 greater demand than there is supply for quality right. hunt experience. Now, I've made the yeah. case in the past where I think if we had more abundant game on the landscape, I think hunter satisfaction would go up because. If you're getting sure. into elk every day, nobody and, cares. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, I did I run yeah, into yeah. Joe Schmedley? Yeah, I did. But it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. because there's an elk bugling over there and they're going that way. And we've got two over here. We're going this way. Cool, guys. Shake hands. Good luck, man. And they just you yeah, go yeah. on your way. But I mean, if, I, I, I know that's, I know that for a fact, Chris. Like being in the, the outfitting and guiding business, like everybody, everybody's bitching about the other guy when the hunting's tough. But I mean, think about when you get these, like, I mean, I had third seasons, fourth seasons that were epic just because we had huge snow and it, and the snow drives everybody into the same areas. Cause you know, you, you're not going to be climbing up out of these camps when there's, you know, two and a half feet of snow. So everybody like you're literally be sitting and seeing like a bunch of orange, any glassing spot. And I don't get, nobody complains about it. Cause the hunting was off the charts, you know? You so for sure. I mean, it's, I think it's hard for people to grasp that, but it's way more about, you know, they're messing up my hunt. That's always the the thing, you know, but right. I didn't mean to interrupt you, man. No, 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 I'm glad. No, I want you. No, you, I'm, you're on here because you, I, I value your sure, yeah. experience and input. So just dive in. Like I, I want yeah. it because that's the thing is me running hunts now out here in Northwest Kansas. Uh, I mean, there, there's so, when you're, it's one thing to have your own hunt and then you're out there for one week. You see what your one week window gives you. 
And you can say, okay, well, I'm very knowledgeable about it because I've hunted for 20 years. Okay, yes, that's true. But your 20 years of experience is a one-week window. Or, a, or let's just, let's expand it to a two-week window. I don't care. Yeah. Your, your experience is this 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 one finite window in this one particular month in many times in this one particular area. So yes, you have a lot of, of trend data over years for that one little snapshot. But when you are an outfitter or guide or whatever, and you're out there every single week of the season, across every season, across 10, 20, whatever years, now you get to see the ebbs and flows. Now you get to see, okay, yeah, you had a miserable third week of season, but you should have been here last week. Like it was off the yeah. hook. Or you you were here first week of season and it was it was butt crack hot and dry and everything else. But the last part of the season, the last part of September, we got a snowstorm and it went, it was just off the so the elk were here. Like for me yeah. last year, I was in 501 and it sucked. But we had weather conditions that suppressed the everything. It just and and quite honestly, 501 is not the unit that it used to be anyway. So it, the conditions sucked. But when sure. you look across the years, you could see it ebb and flow and, and everything else. So it's, it's hard for people that only see that snapshot in time to be able, unless they have many years of hunting, to be able to appreciate when you say, when there's elk screaming all around you, Suddenly, all the other stuff is is less important, but they, yeah. but people may never have had a chance to experience that, and right. their natural proclivity is to say, "Yeah, because there's too many hunters." No, maybe, maybe, yeah. But if had you been here a week this week, or had you been there earlier, or had you been, it could be wildly different on the same piece of real estate. Oh and yeah, so it's it's uh, that's why I'm. I'm no, I'm glad. Always chime in on if you've got a thought or 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 something to push back or or add on. Sure. I, absolutely, because this is this is this is why I wanted to bring you in because I look at so twofold. We've got the issue of this group of GMUs south of where you are used to guiding that are now limited draw. Now, again, yeah, yeah. it's it's okay. So first and foremost, it's the first year that it's limited draw. So I doubt they're going to make a massive change on how many tags they limit. I don't think they're just going to just slash the, the bejeebas out of them. Right. So maybe the vast majority of people that put in for this tag can get the tag with zero or one point or whatever. I don't know yeah. how much of a reduction the agency is going to take. I don't think it's going to be drastic right off the bat. Usually they'll start to stair step it down. Right. Sure. Um, but like you said, it's going to push all those people that are disenfranchised, all, that did not get their tag, or more importantly, that don't want to burn a preference point. Maybe they're sitting on a handful of preference points, right. and, and they're like, screw that. I don't want to burn my preference point. So they're, gonna, they're going to have to go to 43, 34, 25, 26, 35. Okay. So let's talk. And, th and then I want to move into the kind of the wolf issue because sure. that area is ground zero for where the agency is looking at dumping wolves to start right. the, the initial reintroduction effort. Okay. So let's take it twofold from your experience in, in 25, 26, 34, and, and well, maybe not 34 per se, but 
is the terrain and the access and the trails in those areas, do you think you're going to see a massive shift in public land pressure over-the-counter Joe Schmedley hunters coming into that chunk of the flat tops? Or is it is it remote enough and rugged enough to where it's just self-limiting? Uh, you're talking about from the fact that it's still over-the-counter. Correct. Because, I mean, these hunters are going to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. My, so my question is, is where the you know they they could absolutely go down to the Uncompahgre. They could go down to uh, you know Montrose that area and and on that chunk of real estate. Sure, they could go over to forty three maybe. But quite honestly, you've got thirty two. Once you get into thirty two and thirty one, I believe you got a hell of a lot more private land. Yeah, you start looking at the public land that's going to be able to hold that. I mean, again, forty five, forty four, four forty four, forty six. That's all limited draw now. Yeah. So, yeah. The only place they're going to squeeze out to is either south or north. North is your that's yeah, that's, so that's I mean, your home area. Yeah, to, to answer your question, Chris is I think it's just going to be a continued, you know, steady increase. I think the last few years of me operating there, I was already starting to see it come from particularly just the other side of the highway 44. So I think it's just going to jump up, jump up incrementally. To be honest with you, though, I think that it, there there is a, a that will occur. But I also noticed just over the years, like a fluctuation in the amount of hunters based on other things, too, like the economy or or whatever. So it, it's it's hard for me to speculate because, I mean, if, if this, you know, our economic situation in the country like crashes, it, it may be there may be less pressure in there. I, you know, I don't know. Right. I think the answer to your question is like in general, if you're just basing on the status quo, yeah, it's going to trickle up. Is it going to be, you know, a, a crazy burst? I don't know that the, one of the challenges in those, all those units you mentioned are a little bit different. So 34, I can tell you 34 because it has one, it has a few roads that are, you know, they get real high elevation real quick and they're good access. They're pretty good roads. They have seen a, an insane amount of influx from my perspective. Uh, and I think they will see more and more because not everybody, when you're talking about some of these other units, like 25, even 26, I'd say like, you can't, you, it's hard to effectively hunt some of that country unless you're, unless you're, you know, pretty intense backpacker or you've got horses and mules. So there you're going to, it's going to be limited. You're just going to see like massive influx at the trailheads. There's just a problem with distribution of hunters in those areas. Um, and the reality is, is the outfitters don't help on that distribution because they're all tapped out. Their permits are all tapped out. You know, if a guy, if a guy's not, if a guy's not staying booked right now on his permits, he's got some other problem going on. So, you know, is in, in that country's, I, you know, I wasn't the only guy in, like if you get off you know, around me, there's other outfitters. So there's a lot of outfitting activity in the backcountry there, but they can't take any more people in. Um, so you're going to see a big influx at the trailheads, you know, within six miles of the trailheads. That's where all your increase is going to be. And then like 34, to me, 34, where the road access is, it's already ridiculous. A, a lot of people, in my mind, honestly, the last few years, there's so much, there's so people drive up there and they're like, well, I can't even hunt. There's so many people. So right. I, I guess that's a long answer to your question. No, 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 it's perfect. No, because that's that's exactly it. Because yeah. I again I I've I've seen this this trend. The thing that I'm looking at now is we know I, I just I'm like 
I just feel bad. Like I, I know, man, the problem is, <laughs> well, the, the thing, the thing is, Chris is like, you, you started to hit on the point that I have always been a huge believer of in that Hunter happiness and Hunter experience. I wish the last two decades, we, we really focused on like the supply side of it, like the supply side of opportunity, because that it's hard for me to talk about it in the context of the world now, because the wolf thing is like the inverse of that. It's going to take away supply. So all these issues you're talking about are going to be heavily exacerbated because there's not a scenario ahead of us where there's more supply. In Colorado, there's not going to be more supply elk. There's not going to be more supply of sheep or goats or any of these species. You know, that's, I think that's just a given. So it's almost, I think it's hard and I understand, you know, where your frustration is on it because it's hard to, to see that tide turning and like, how is that tide going to turn other than just way less hunter opportunity? I, dude, I don't, I don't know. I don't think there is an answer, honestly. No. And and unfortunately, and this goes back to, you know, what I said in the beginning, you you look at the difference between Kayabab and how they run their forest management. Now, I understand Ponderosa Pine forest communities, you know, Pinion Juniper to Ponderosa Pine forest communities are a lot different than a sagebrush, aspen, lodgepole pine community. But you can still have a general, um, I guess, management philosophy, if you will. You know, the Kayabab is very proactive on their forest management, keeping the, the the forest succession ecology rotating to where early succession, yeah. later succession, they're, they're always constantly keeping that ecosystem in some semblance of a natural state. Yeah. Colorado does not. I'm, I'm sorry. The, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. the national forest, each, I, I don't care. I, I literally, I'm sorry. I can't think of a forest that is doing Okay, uh, I got to qualify. Okay. I don't see some of these forests doing large-scale proactive stuff, except for along some of the front range communities, and they're doing proactive stuff now simply for fire mitigation. That's all it is. It's yeah, wildfire sure. It's wildfire mitigation. It's not, yep. we're going to build wildlife habitat. We're going to increase forest productivity. We're going to increase forest rangeland productivity. We're going to grow more elk. That's no, I don't, I don't, I don't see a single one of them. And I understand the bureaucracies. I understand the limitation of money. However, it also comes from a a top-down philosophy and all the external inputs that come into it. I understand all that, but we don't see federal public lands. And I, and I have to, and for those, and I don't know, Cliff, if you saw some of those polls that I did on my uh, Instagram stories, that shocked the shit out of me. That <laughs> Hunter dollars, Pittman Robertson dollars, do not go to the federal public land. They don't go to Forest Service. They don't go to right. BLM. That's that's general funds out of the U.S. budget, and that's taxpayer dollars, largely. Now, you can right. take like certain projects might put some money on the ground on these federal lands, but $100 go to the state agencies. And so we don't see large-scale efforts by the Forest Service trying to increase 
game populations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, why? I mean, this the structure of it doesn't make. I mean, it, well, think about it. In my, we were talking about my business, Chris. I from a, I mean, obviously interacted with state guys. You know, wardens and stuff would come out and check my hunters, and I knew all those guys. We had a great relationship, but we had no formal relationship as an outfitter who you know took you know hundreds of elk hunters. I had no relationship with the CPW. I only had a formal relationship with the feds. And so it's like this weird structure with wildlife is, is, it's kind of crazy. And I I don't, I can only imagine from, from your standpoint, like the frustration of like the habitat is owned by X and the animals are owned by Y. Yeah, owned. <laughs> yeah, owned. Whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. No, you're yeah. you're right, and it's like yeah. it's like, and quite honestly, unfortunately, it's like nary the two shall meet. Like, right. Uh, the oh, but the thing the thing right. is, Chris, why it's an interesting discussion is like, there's actually a solution to this like hunter problem. It's what you said. Like, you have elk in my mind, and tell me if I'm wrong on any any of this. Yeah, I've I've known quite a few people who raise them and just being around them my my whole life. They're like the Western species that's really, really robust to like if you manage them correctly, they will thrive and they will spit off an insane amount of opportunity to right. people. Um they're like they're like the gift from God to to Western hunters because they can come back, they can live in Estes Park, they can live in the flat tops, and they just they'll do all right if you just help them. Right. And, and, and so to me, it's like, that's, that's the trouble, man. It's like, we have this golden goose. Right. And right. I, I think the last 15, the last 15 years, uh, some of the trouble has been this habitat versus, uh, you know, game manager, uh, bureaucracy and trouble. And then now the trouble is obviously the, the wolf deal, but uh, yeah, it's a frustrating scenario, man. Yeah. So and that's the thing is I've always made the case that hunter out for, you know, on the, on the landscape, you've got ungulates, you know, deer, elk, moose, that type of stuff. And then, you know, beer, let's just spo- focus on ungulates. So for elk, their carrying capacity is regulated by the productivity of the habitat that they're in, how much food, the quality of food, and then their ability to have sanctuary and safety away from predators and stress and that type of stuff. Usually temperature is not a, a big issue. It's it's do they have access to high quality food? Yes or no. And do they have sanctuary away from some stressor and presser, uh, predator stress response, you know, uh, impact? Hunter carrying capacity is not tied to a, a GMU boundary. Hunter carrying capacity, we are just like ungulates in our habitat is the critters. The more critters we have on the landscape, the more hunters we can have on the landscape engaging that population of animals and enjoy doing so. So if the population of animals goes up, our hunter carrying capacity on the landscape and tolerance of one another on the landscape also goes up. If the population of critters goes down, then our carrying capacity must by default also is going to go down. It's 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 no different than a regular predator prey relationship or an ungulate habitat relationship. It's it they're tied together and they ride those cycles. And the fact that we just don't see 
elk foundation notwithstanding i know that they do they put a bunch of money on the ground and they will do small projects here and there and places but from a landscape scale across the forest service body of of regulatory you know federal public lands we're not seeing these large scale efforts across the entire forest to keep a good successional rotation in the habitats happening you know we, we just right. don't and so yeah our carrying capacity with elk is going to be limited and that's why we're seeing some of the the angst we see today but let's go right to what you were just saying let's talk about 34 25 26 that habitat the the elk are going to be found all right do me this favor i don't need you to give me drainages and in benches and low like I don't, yeah. I don't want, I don't want honey holes and that type of stuff, but from a general concept from August to let's just say end of October, because in October you can start getting snows and that, that can start moving elk around and that, that can start changing things. I mean, hell you could have them in September too, but let's just, let's just keep it in a, like a September and like from the middle of August through, let's just say middle of August to middle of, of October. Let's just, because the, the bulk of the, the movement on over the counter lands changing into limited is because of archery. So I guess let, let's, let's just yeah. do that. Let, let's just look at, uh, let's go like middle of August before season starts to the month of September in your units. How did you find like, what did you see as far as elk occupancy of those three units? Like, were they evenly distributed? Were they very distinct clumps and pockets? Were they highly moved? You know, in August, they're over here, but by third week of September, they're way the freaking hell. Like, what did you see as far as elk distribution on the landscape? And how did it move across that time from what your experience was in there? across that month of September. Yeah. So, so in August, so in, let's say like late July through the first three weeks of August and we, you know, we had a fishing business and a, you know, we did some wilderness. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So I saw elk during that country and I could go show you bulls every day. It, it like, it, you know, every day, all the way through the middle of August, I could probably show if I, if I took you and we just rode for a day, left left in the dark came back in the dark i probably show you 20 bulls a day you know what i mean like you you would have thought like this is over the counter like you know you you couldn't believe in that i knew i would know where they are but they'd be you know up in those big open flats on the top or you know spots that you you there are big meadows in that up on that plateau stuff so you see you know groups of bulls in there and then you know, obviously they get they get rid of their velvet and then you start to have activity in the forest uh, by the, you know, by the end of, end of August there. And I saw kind of two things, Chris, in, in the heavily hunted, like 25, 26, what I saw is I saw elk move into really small pockets, like almost like people will ask me, okay, Cliff, when would you hunt? Would you hunt the first the beginning of the season or the end of season? Like universally, like, I don't like calling in elk, all of that, just killing elk universally. I'm all about the first three days of the season, like universe, like absolutely. Because after it, you know, hold, ten days in. Go ahead. Hold, hold on. How how long? When did you sell? 
When, when did when did you stop guiding up there? Yeah, so it had been two seasons ago. Okay, okay. So you did see the 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 season change. You did you you did transition over that that season to the five year big game season structure change work. Yeah, yeah. Because we used to start the last Saturday of August, and right. then it then it went to September second, and that is a world of difference. Because yeah, yeah. that last, because it there were some years it would start like say on the twenty fifth of August, maybe it was the twenty fourth. I, I don't twenty fifth of August would be, you know, one year is is when opening day is, and then some other year, just the way the calendar falls, maybe it's the 29th of August, whatever. But regardless, those last you're mirroring mirroring exactly what I've said in the past. Those last few days of August, man, that's that's when that pre rut move would happen. And you've got those bulls that are engaged. They're looking. I mean, that was my that was my bread yeah. and butter. That I mean, my high country camp. I I could set like August twenty eighth or 29th, The elk are leaving. It yeah, and it yeah. didn't. I was the only one in there. Like I was. It wasn't like I was pressuring them. That's just what they did. If the season started on the twenty fifth or twenty sixth, I could get in there and have it's just epic. Yeah. So what you're saying is absolutely right. Now, the question I have for you for clarification, are you talking about still those first three days of September or are you talking the old five-year beginning season structure of the first three days of of whatever the end of August was or does it matter? I mean, still, no, yet still towards the end, uh, Chris, like the the last couple of years I was in there, it was still like those, those, because it starts September 2nd, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm trying to think like, yeah, those first, like, so I would put camps in, you know, I would put usually camps in in like five day periods, like drop camps in particular. So usually those first drop camps way up in the high country, like they'd be into elk, particularly some of them. I knew like, oh, I, like I'm going to drop you guys off and you're going to you're going to be in the elk. And then you kind of during that five day period, those elk would would dissipate. Right. And go do something else. Now, the the way you describe it is a little bit different than how I thought about it. And it's probably just a just a correlation thing, right? Is that period of time always uh, was related to it just me and my business creating way more activity in the forest? You know sure. what I mean? Like, yep. so yep. we were starting yep. to put in camps and we were starting to pack hard, like in really remote areas of the flat tops, which yep. some of the areas get, I mean, now, it, like the last couple of years, they get more activity, just hikers and stuff. But a lot of the areas we put camps, they, they still don't get a lot of just summer traffic. So we were introducing a lot more activity in the area. So I never knew. I never knew if it was if it was you know elk were leaving because we we you know we throwing hunters at them or or what. But like that first once that first week was gone, like the first five day period, the the hunting was a lot. I would call it a lot more variable, right? Like I I could have guys go a few days and just not hear anything, not see anything, and it was just tough to find elk, right? Right. Whereas that first few days, that wasn't the case. Like generally you could, you know, you could get guys in elk pretty, pretty consistently. Um, so that was always my you know, answer to it was they, they dissipate. And what I would see was kind of interesting because it, it, it took me a lot of thought process. And, you know, I, in a way, as I ran that business, I had like, I had all hunters out all the time and they were like, I had guys guided for me. I was guiding. And then we had our drop camp guys. So I had like all these little centuries collecting data for me. Right. And I'm like, well, where's yeah. the elk are at? Cause I got, I got like the country pretty covered, man. And what, what I noticed is they would get into like, it was almost like 
I'm sure it was a reflection of the pressure. Well, I know it was, well, at least in my mind, I have a, I have an explanation of why this is, but they would go like, you know, they would go rut in a little small area and that, you know, and, and, and they would not leave that, that little area until they left. Like I remember Chris, like literally knowing there was public guys on this ridge. And then I was down guiding in like a, in a basin below. Right. And there's a couple finger ridges of, uh, you know, of, of thick timber between us. Right. And then maybe a mile this way, there's another public camp. Right. So these ridges are surrounded. And I remember guiding in, I'm talking like within a, you know, maybe mile and a half, you know, radius or whatever, or diameter circle. Right. And I remember just watching bulls with cows, just living on those ridges, just surrounded by hunters, just, you know, just, you know, a, a, you know, one herd bull and in the flat tops of herd bull might be little six by six or five by five, but he's got the cows. He's got 10 yeah. cows with them. And he's got a couple of little rinky dink bulls around there and they'll, they won't leave. Like they'll, they'll stick right there. They got water. They'll, they'll be feeding in the little, the little timber meadows. And so those elk would dis, you know, they disperse into those little spots in the wilderness. And then it took me a while to figure this out, but a lot of elk would dump into the low country. You know, they, I don't know. I don't know like the, the spread. I don't know if it was 50, 50 or what, but, enough but a lot of elk noticing. would dump. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, go ahead. All right. No, 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 no. This is, this is why, cause this is why I want to have this discussion because what I would like, I mean, my, my intent behind having you on here was, Let's just kind of go through the thought process of what is what has been, so to speak, baseline elk activity that you saw. Yeah. Now we know that we're going to quite likely going to see an influx at least a little bit this year and probably incrementally so over these next couple of years, an influx of other hunters trying to go up, up into these areas. So it's going to increase the pressure okay, in these areas just from hunting pressure. What is that going to do to elk movement in these areas? And then we're going to be throwing wolves on this thing. Right. Hunting pressure is one thing because hunting pressure comes at a very distinct, distinct period of time. Wolf pressure is 365, 24-7. Yeah. And so that's going to be another fundamental change. And so what I would like to do, what I'm, what I'm trying to work towards is, you know, we, we have reports of what happened in Idaho. As far and I just just literally before I got on with you, I called a buddy up there, uh, just because he was uh, very, I mean, right front and center of what happened up in Idaho as the wolves moved in, and, and talked to him about the changes he saw. I'm very curious at what's going to happen to elk movement up in this area, because again, there's a reason why these areas are are dominoing into limited draw. Um, the 45, 44, 444, 47 complex. I'm sorry. I'm just going to call. I'm just going to, I don't care. My friends in the AG agency can, can, can call me full of shit or not. The reason why 40, 44, 45, 444, 47, I think went to limited draw and the elk population is doing so shitty. That's where I did the elk upper Eagle river elk yeah. study like that. That's where I cut my teeth on all this stuff. Sure. Um, the predation predator pressure between lions and bears yeah. It's just it is just relentless and it's excessive. And and in my opinion, I, I've I've already gone on on record and saying I I understand that recreation 
summer recreation and winter, you know, I understand recreation has increased tenfold, but like right. you said, you, you have to, elk are highly habitual species. If you're going to make the claim that increased activity in these areas by humans recreating, which generally speaking are at least largely trail-based, okay? You're going to have to make an argument to me why we've got 400 head of elk leaving the Estes Valley, dropping down into West Loveland. Yeah. Like you need to have an argument with me of why we have so many elk giving birth on people's back decks in Estes Park, not near the yeah, deck. Yeah, yeah. No, they climb up on the deck and give birth on the deck. Yeah, yeah. Or, I, I or to... yeah, or by July, every every cat every cow in Estes Park still has a calf, whereas in in Eagle, half of them don't have them already. Yeah, what? More. What? Yeah, yeah. Like what? Like what? Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know what's going on. Well, here. and we and, and in the in the flat tops was kind of similar, you know, and it, it's way more remote. I mean, or like. I should say it has way less summer activity or it did during most of my time there. And we still saw the decline in, in calves and that sort of thing right. on our it's, side it, in particular. Exactly. So we know we've got a, I'm going to, this is my opinion. We've got, we know we've got a predation issue in that 44, 45, 40, that, that chunk of real estate. We yeah. know that we have hot, you know, obviously 12, 23, 24, 20, 33 have been limited draw for a few years. But we still know that the the 34, 25, 26, and maybe even 35, I'm not familiar with 35, we, we know that area has got a, a piss pile of hunters. And it's going to have more now that this other complex has, has got more hunters. That just, it means we're going to have, regardless of hunter harvest, obviously you increase the number of hunters on the landscape, you're going to make elk move a little bit more, maybe you'll have more harvest in there. Regardless of that move of that harvest, you're going to imp that increased human pressure is going to the elk are going to adjust to it. Yeah. And then you've got the wolves going on. So when you say that, and the, I mean, it's it's pretty universal. The more you have archery hunting occurring in a in a region, and and I will own, and this is again, this is my bias. If you look at the last 10 years, and I'll I'll just make it 10 years, but especially the last five years, but last 10 years for archery hunting, the popularity of a more aggressive style elk hunting strategy or tactic or technique has just gone up. The number of guys that are out there just running ridges, bugling like crazy, going all day long and, and going into bedding areas and trying like... It's it's yeah. now it's very sexy to have that high bugling, high energy, high aggressive, you know, who cares? You know, no one cares, work harder. Like just go in there and yeah. get it. Like get in there after it and, and work, you know, yeah. weasel them out and get okay. That's very aggressive and it's going to change behavior of animals and they're going to move away and they're going to find those sanctuary areas. I've seen the exact same thing that you've you're what you're talking about here. They and I've talked about this, they will find a little pocket. And if they've got food, water, and cover, and sanctuary, it may be not a mile and a half. It may literally be a few hundred yards. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like I mean, it's, it's like it's like bulls. It's like late season bulls are hanging in a hole somewhere. Now you got cows and bulls rutting in a hole somewhere. Right is basically what. Yeah, 
No, and I, and, I, and I to, to your point up there, and I've made this case in the past, what you just said, you've got a group of cows and you've got maybe a small six by six. Well, what do you mean by a small six by six? He's probably a three-year-old bull. Mm-hmm. That's a young bull. He yeah. doesn't have any knowledge that that's a sanctuary and that's where I need to go. Yeah, he's, he's just happy to be there. Yeah, he's, but, he's, his, but his mom, mom does. His yes. mom knows it's up. Yeah, that 15 yeah. or 18-year-old cow that's in there, she's the one that's figured out that that little honey hole is the place to go into and just stay yeah. alive and and yeah. hopefully keep her bull alive to where she can get pregnant. After that, she doesn't give two shits, but she just right. needs to get pregnant. So when you say you watched as the season progressed, you know, obviously you've got the natural variation of, of movement right. and activity day to day, but they generally moved lower. Which direction are you talking about? Are, are they dropping to the west down lower? Or are they just dropping just in the public land lower? Or like when you said that they moved and started to move out. Yeah, where, so where were they going? And out in in a lot of this is in a in a sense I'd say is is it varied a little bit year to year, but I wouldn't call it gradual, Chris. I mean, I, I would say like within the first 10 days of archery, I felt like in the wilderness area, we lost a big chunk of our elk, like boom. And oh. I, and I knew, and I know the guys like off. So you can look at maps. It's no secret. Everybody can see where the ag is, where the big working cattle ranches are, whatever on, on, you know, the sides of the flat tops. So that's where I'm talking. And I knew all the guys that ran the hunting down there, but uh, uh, several of those ranches are ranching for wildlife, uh, you know, ranches. So, you know, those guys saw the influx of elk. That's where they, they'd show up. You know what I mean? So, so I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking low, like down in the center pivots and stuff. You right. Know what I mean, they, which you're, you're talking many miles. They picked up. Oh yeah. 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 Like, like eight miles, 10 right. miles. They picked up yeah. and said goodbye. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing that I think is going to be interesting. Yeah. No, I know where you're going with this. Cause I, that's yeah. I, so, I call it like, I call it the temporary silver lining, man. Like, are these wolves going to get <laughs> into them yeah. and run, run them back into the wilderness? I don't see why they wouldn't. Like, it looks, so, I, the, the way I view it, man, if I was archery hunting up there and, and I, and I had no rules to follow, I wouldn't be archery hunting up there. I would go down the center pivots and hunt them down there. <laughs> so if I was a wolf, that's what I'd do. Okay. And see, so that's exactly, so I've got, a, I've got some other uh, conversations getting lined up now with some folks that have, have lived this, lived through it. But just talking with Rob just a minute ago, I asked him, I said, cause what, what some people had said in Idaho is, is all of a sudden, you know, all the elk were scattered. They just were like, it was like, it was a little group here, a little group, you know, it was like, like a little group went and tried to hide somewhere and become unnoticed. That makes sense. Like, and I yeah. see that here with, with our coyote predation, uh, our coyote population is just skyrocketed and they are running in packs and they are just focusing like 90 plus percent focused on deer. They're, they're yeah, acting like wolves. Sure. Yeah. They're, they're acting like wolves on the landscape. And over time, what I'm seeing is we don't have the big assemblages of deer anymore. We're finding a doe and her fawns and a couple are like way the hell out there. And then there's another group way the hell out, like way out in prairie and way out in rough ground. They like, they're like, we're just going to get away from the big groups and we're just going to try to just blend in or, or just, we're going to, we're going to disappear on this landscape and hope that we don't get picked up by a, a pack of coyotes that wants to hunt us. And and you can watch right. the coyotes go from 
large group of deer to large group of deer to large. I mean, they just, they're on a cycle. And so I have seen some of our deer movement and behavior change to those little fragmented pockets. However, um, and, and that's kind of what I, I, I was kind of expecting. I'm like, well, maybe the elk are going to fragment and maybe the elk are going to, you know, disappear in these little pockets. Um, but what some people have said is actually, no, they watched all those elk just peel out of all that and go okay. way, go out into the private land, flat areas oh, the wolves and, and be just literally be in these balls. To where, again, you know, you, I, I know that you've studied ecology where you talk about that selfish herd mentality where everybody packs in and it's now as, it's just the odds. Like I'm in, I can either be one of 10 animals and if the wolf pack finds me, I've got a 10% chance of, of survival. Yeah, yeah, sure. Versus yeah, yeah. I'm in a herd of a thousand and I've got one in a thousand chance of getting, getting eaten. Yeah, I see. What you're, so you're saying it could actually exacerbate what's already going on. That's the the, that's the question. Yeah, yeah. Do they mm-hmm. do they just all peel out of the high country, go right out onto those big ranches, and they're yeah. just clustered? Yes, the the wolves move them around, but those yeah. big clusters just move around like this giant yeah. amoeba on the landscape. It's funny you say that because that's what they do now. They do that, uh, you know, like. Right, like the the elk I'm talking about, like you'll go down and like because you know some of those roads or some of those big ranches they got county roads through them. So I mean, you can drive down them September 15th, and there will be like I'm talking like a wad of elk in the middle. Like right, it'd, it'd be very hard to approach them. You know, they look yeah, like animals because they can they can watch any danger coming. Yeah, from a mile away. Sure, and so. Because they're a cursory species, a, a cur- uh, cursory, they, they're a species for the, they're a type of species that flees danger by running. Sure, they don't, sure. they don't flee danger by hiding. And, you know, right. they, they, they run away from danger. So again, you remember the fact that elk used to be a plain species. And many, if you go back in history, you didn't find a lot of elk up in the deep, deep, timber areas historically 1800s that type of stuff yeah they were out on the plains why they're adapted to running long distances running away from predators it was only after all the pressure on the plains from everything else that they started to find shelter and sanctuary yeah, in I got mountains you. so the the behavioral proclivity of anim- of elk is to find safety now again they are very e- they they learn very quickly and efficiently and then they will adapt but i was hoping like i was kind of hoping like okay so maybe in the short term before wolves just like saturate yeah the, yeah yeah like we all know it's going to decline a, you know in, hit they got they got to eat they got to eat something right. but like are they going to distribute the elk in the meantime yeah. so are they that's and that's where we are it's like are are we going to see because that's Colorado has had this love hate relationship with private lands and the 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 private land voucher system because you know public land hunters hate the fact that elk go down on private property and where they can't go after them and then the private landowners that own these big ranches can get private land vouchers and then they can sell them or do whatever they want and then the you know there's certain hunters that are bitching and complaining like oh that's not fair and blah 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 well yeah, yeah. you kind of i know there's problems with the voucher system i was involved with that discussion back in the day partly but 
at least with a voucher system and some of the outfitting and guide, if you can have hunting on the public, uh, excuse me, sure. on the private ranches, it does encourage at least a portion of some of those animals to go back oh, yeah. up onto public. If the habitat is good enough on right. that public ground to provide the resources they need when they, you know, when they need to be there. But so there is that maybe silver lining of, okay, maybe if the wolves are down there and they're persecuting the shit out of them down on the pri private property, maybe it'll keep, maybe we will have more elk spread across the landscape, disappear in these little honey holes and stay distributed across the landscape a, a little bit more consistently over time. But then talking with some others, I'm like, oh shit, like, or is it going to go the other way and really be exacerbated? Because if that's the case, if what we see, uh, and I want to get to your interview, uh, your, the one you just had uh, in a second, and talk about the private land here in a second. Hunters are focusing on, and I've focused on, bring wolves in, they're going to start eating elk. When they eat, let's say they take a thousand elk off the landscape in a D, let's just say they take, I, I can't say they're going to take a thousand elk off of a landscape in a DAU, but maybe they will. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. Let, let Hypothetically, the, the, the statement was made during public comment and through the development of the plant that if you have an area that has a 10% hunter harvest success rate, if you remove 1,000 elk off the off the 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 menu, so to speak, for hunters, then that equates to a loss of 10,000 hunting licenses. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I follow the math. Okay, I, and I'm yeah. not I and I follow the math too, but this is where. I want to I want to look at that more critically. You know what I mean? I'm like, mm, well, yeah. If it, it sounds funny, right, it, it sounds it, right, but uh, is it like? Yeah, yeah. It sounds right. And but anyway, here's the reason that sounds so weird is because you have like a circular equation, right, Chris? It's like, well, you could use that equation. You could say like, well, you know what we really need? We don't need 10% success rate. We need 1% success rate. Because then we could then we could sell a thousand tags. And sell, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, like yeah, right, right. So, but if if you look at it, and I don't I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I yeah, think yeah, uh, yeah. what what was okay. So in your units, do do you do you remember? I know you track this stuff. You geek out on oh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember yeah. what the success rate was? Yeah, in those, those are those are the numbers, man. Like it's it's a over the count. That's that's tough hunting, man. You're okay. talking like rifle seasons are are ten to fifteen percent success. Okay, so the argument was made. And and again, I I know equations are supposed to work both ways, but it just I don't know. I don't know. I haven't yeah. had I don't have my head wrapped around it yet. Yeah, but yeah. if that's the case, if if a, if a loss of a thousand elk translates into a necessitated reduction in ten thousand tags given to hunters, that's one thing. And I think, and I made the argument that when you look at the current wolf plan, the agency has already said that they're going to have to, they're going to manage the elk herd, the, the ungulate herd in these areas for, for that have wolves 
at the upper level of the uh basically the DAU plan uh, the objective the herd objectives so yeah. if if the herd objectives are you know between we want between 10,000 and 30,000 elk in this area and right now we have hunting regulating this herd and we've got about 20,000 elk in the in the in the herd well they're achieving that rough 20,000 objective between hunter harvest and natural predation and natural loss. Yeah, so yeah. if if the agency in the plan is already saying we need to move our objective management up to the 30,000 level, that right off the top, before the like even without wolves being on the that tells me that the agency's already going to say, then we're we have to reduce tax because we have to allow right. that herd. We, we want that that herd to maximize its productivity on the landscape to the point where the wolves are not bringing them below the herd. So automatically, right off the top, hunters lose. Like we're going to lose tags right off the top. Yeah. Then, based on what hunter harvest is, I think we're going to we're we're also going to lose after that because as the wolves expand and as they move and they start having you know, efficiency and predation and, and, and ungulate regulatory you know, regulation, I think we're going to lose a second level. The question is, if wolves do what they've done in some areas and drive all the elk down into these wide open spaces, yeah, it doesn't even matter how many elk tags you sell. Right. There's no elk on the public land. They're all down on does that make sense i mean like yeah yeah yeah. no yeah we, like, we just, I, the, we just the, sold the, you a tag to go hike your bow around the mountains yeah like, yeah, yeah because they're well, all on the private land down on on that private chunk of real estate where you i'm sorry you don't have access to yeah yeah well like, and and the scary th yeah and so i'm totally following following you chris and i could see it and i'm not trying to like crap on the cpw but i've actually seen that dynamic in units with sheep where literally the, the a group of bighorns is spending 95 percent of their time out of the unit and they're still letting guys put in for the draw there and you know and draw a tag so i could see that happening in this scenario and then the question is i mean I, and the reality is because i'm i'm naive i haven't talked to people who have lived through a wolf introduction i you know so i don't know i'm just speculating and obviously, you know what my speculation was, but like maybe it'll help distribute them. But if you've talked to people who actually have lived through it and saw them, you know, just instead just congregate more, yeah, it's a scary thought, you know. I and and um, I'm I have to uh, obviously the qualification here is, of course, the habitat is different because right, you know, the the agency has always made the case that you know. And, and it, I mean, there's scientific journals articles that that have been published by agency folks and by that that say this, you know, state this all the time about you know archery hunting pushes elk down onto private land. Like that, that's just a it's a staple, you know, discussion. Well, okay, the qual the, the accurate statement there is archery hunting can push elk down onto private land when private land is available to provide additional sanctuary for elk. Yeah, because you can go into some of these units where you have like no private land anywhere, um, right. 
they're not picking up and going two ridges over the Continental Divide and going into, yeah. they're not moving 50 miles because of archery season. They're right. moving to where there's an additional sanctuary re, you know, relief from pressure. If right. the private land is available and that is what provides that relief, well, of course they're going to go there. But in yeah, some yeah. of these units where that doesn't exist, well, okay, they're not going there. They're 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 doing what you're saying. They're finding a little pocket tucked in a little hole somewhere, and they're just riding out the pressure. They're just like sitting there yeah. going, just just yeah. let's <laughs> just get through this onslaught, right? Sure. So, I've always hated that. That you know, anyway, that it's, I man, I don't know. It's gonna be it's gonna be dependent on the habitat. It's gonna be dependent upon the uh, the nature of public and private. Which then leads me back to the Forest Service. Because if we had higher quality early succession habitats on public ground where the forage was better and or at least more, more abundant than it is now, I think you could offset that sank I think you could find where maybe we could offset some of that negative effects of 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 animals being pushed to private. The question is and I'm just asking your opinion because you've dealt with the forests up there. Do you think we'll ever get to a a, a stage where the forest service or BLM gets into a mindset of habitat manipulation and habitat management for games ungulate species yeah i i i guess to me i did that did that make sense i mean like because right yeah, now no, no, you... no, it, make, it makes sense i'm trying to reflect on like to me it's all about incentives chris and i just don't see the incentive for the forest service to to that's a great. Shit. Okay, they're they're. You know what I mean? I'm, that's, that's a great. Okay, no, that's a, that's a great comment. That 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 that's a great comment. You're right. I mean, there there has to be. So it could be twofold. It could be top down, like regulatory authority or regulatory uh, mandate. You will or you must. You know what yeah. I mean? Like top down, the Forest Service will do X Y Z. And and quite honestly, this is what the activists are doing now. They're trying to sue the Medicine Bow Route National Forest under ESA because they didn't quote unquote prove it. So it could be a top down mandate that, you know, for whatever reason you must do X, Y, Z, but I didn't even think about, or it could be an incentive, uh, uh, not a bottom up, but uh, uh, even just a lateral. Is there an incentive for the agency to do? So, yeah. So I, I, I'm, and I'm just trying to think through it. Chris, like where I saw, the forest service do stuff in those valleys. Like what well, I guess, which, you know, is kind of like habitat work is there, there, there was obviously some pressure for them to start doing fire mitigate. Like actually I, I, I could not believe it. Um, and it was driven by fire mitigation, but in Eagle, you spent time, you're familiar with the town of Eagle. So when I was a little kid uh, in Eagle, like a little, a little, a little boy, like the age of mine right now, like five or six, they, that hard scrabble area, they logged it they, and, and, you know, they logged it up there and they actually logged it last year, which in my mind, I would have thought, right. I, mean, I would have thought that I'd never see that, but 
the reason they were able to do that is there was there's some pressure around this fire mitigation thing, right? So when you, I guess to your point is if there's pressure and and you know I assume some incentives due to that pressure, yeah, they obviously would do could you know would do some habitat work. I and dude, I Chris, I could be naive, but I never heard at least in the areas that I operated, I never heard of the Forest Service ever doing any habitat work. Okay. So that's the thing is, and and I wanted to, I will largely agree. And and yes, we have some smaller examples. I know outside of, of Woodland Park, uh, the divide area, uh, they did a bunch of work up there. Uh, but again, a lot of this is couched under fire fuels reduction and fire mitigation yeah. efforts. The problem I have with some of that is that is a completely different forest management prescription than habitat now yeah, no yeah some, I, of, I got some of it can overlap especially for elk and for foraging areas you know and, yeah. and absolutely elk are going to probably benefit for some of that more than say mule deer will and it de especially definitely you know moose but um of uh, and to your and further to your point about the fire fuels mitigation, I know that in the latest round of, or I believe if I remember right, in the latest round of um, Forest Service budgeting and all that, they got an increase in money to be used for fire fuels reduction and, and forest fire mitigation, which then usually, this is the other thing though, usually, and I think you hit on it, that sent, that activity ends up centering around and or adjacent to communities and yeah, and right. resident you know some some level of human occupation because what are they doing yeah, yeah. they're trying to they're trying to minimize the likelihood of someone's town just getting toasted right yeah well i think i think it comes back to incentives chris those my understanding is the feds on fires they know if it threatens private property and that sort of thing they know they have to fight it you know what i mean yep. they, they really don't have a choice so I think that's where the incentive comes, where they basically have to do that work around there. But and so yeah, I got you. And so here we it, let's just. I'm, I'm sorry, man. I, I'm, I, I'm the. I'm I the, love the conversation. I, I, I don't know I'm, if anybody else out there will love it, man. But I'm I'm, I'm the, nerd about I'm, this stuff. I'm the doom and gloom guy right now. Like like that's just me. It's like you know what we joked about. You know, just you know pissing people off one podcast at a time. You know, like, hey, I'm your guy. Um, the. The thing is, is what, you know, Rob was even saying was it was it wasn't the fact that the basically what he what he kind of perceived was that elk were literally just moving. Not even so much out in the middle of these big open flats of of private, which which they were, but also possibly that they were moving right into the outskirts of towns like they yeah, were yeah. moving. They're they're doing they're, the elk have an easier time habituating habituating themselves to human presence than wolves do. And yeah. so the elk just got to drop themselves down and, and yeah. on outskirts of some of these areas because they knew that the wolves really wouldn't push them as yeah. or pressure them as hard there. And Dude, so it's, it's funny, Chris, I'm going to keep stopping you. Cause like you say no, something but, man, that hits me like this dynamic, man, I've seen it with bighorn sheep a ton. Like for years, I would be like, why in this unit do these rams sit right on the highway? Like there's, if I go up this draw in this canyon, it's just as rugged. They got just as much feed. They got just as much water. Why are they sitting right here? Why would they sit here and watch cars go by? Whatever. And I, th I came to the conclusion, man, over the years, it has to be that lions 
hate hate the cars. I was going to say two words. Be what it is. I was, two two words. You know, mountain mountain lions. Right, right yeah, there. yeah. It, it, there's no other valid explanation. It, it, they have to be doing that because they know that that the predators hate the the you know the the infrastructure there. Right. Um. But yeah, I didn't. I, didn't, I just because it just struck me and said like I. I think that dynamic exists. It's a real thing. So, so let me just be the asshole and s- snowball this even further. So here we are with, we, we know wolves are going to change the behavior of elk. We know that some of the sanctuary areas that elk are probably going to go to. Now, I hope some of it, they do fragment and go deeper or, or scatter themselves yeah, sure. on the public land. I, I'm, I'm like, yes, mm-hmm. in the, let's hopefully. But we know that there's likely going to be a shift to, to quote unquote, private lands out of, uh, you know, the general public's reach. But the other thing I'm looking at is like, and, and this is the snowball off of the, the what we're talking about with the habit, with the Forest Service. They're doing all this habitat work, ha- air quotes, habitat work, this fire yeah, fuels, near, near town. F- fire fuels mitigation work, which is opening up the forest canopy, o- opening up in, in opening up range condition on some of these areas, right? But these areas are down in and around some semblance of a community, right? Yeah. So here we are, we're increasing the the range condition, most likely, Mm -hmm. foraging opportunities, most likely, down next to these communities. And elk can learn that these communities are safe spaces. Yeah, yeah. Are we just like going to just end up driving all of our elk into and around communities? And then like literally, how does that play out with hunting? Because we know how many closures do we have along I-70, along 287, like 285 to where you can't hunt within a quarter mile of the road because right, right. we don't want people watching hunting and ha- like, like, yeah. yeah. Like, well, like well, where hey, does yeah. where does this whole thing end, man? <laughs> to take to take the to take like, I mean, yeah, it's negativity, but it's still fun to like speculate, Chris. So in some ways, right. it's, it's right. A positive yeah, it, conversation. It's a thought exercise. But, Come on, but think about this, man. So the other thing you have next to towns, or you know, or within you know where people are living, is all the ag guys have their livestock, right? So all of these uh, these poor livestock guys are going to be out here with flags and all this crap to try to run wolves off their, their, you know, their calves and their sheep or whatever. So the other thing you're going to have down in these areas is you're going to have a bunch of guys that are, that by non-lethal means or whatever the stuff they're going to be put through are going to be harassing the wolves to get them out of there. I guarantee you that if somebody's can accomplish keeping the wolves off their place because of their livestock, the elk are going to be there. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. They're, you know, they're, they're not, the elk will not give a crap about the fact that you got flags and horns and you're honking at the, the wolves. They're going to figure out that, Hey dude, we're going to hang out here by the haystack because this guy is keeping all these wolves up in the mountains. So, it, so let me just snowball on that one because there's <laughs> a game damage law where if elk are in, are negatively impacted, oh, yeah. <laughs> hay piles and everything else, the division of wildlife pays like they'll either pay for the fencing and all that type of stuff, or they yeah, pay yeah. for the loss. Like I don't see anywhere in the plan where it says that we're going to increase the amount of money to pay for ungulate damage on right. this private. You know, it's like that. Like yeah, it could be a real problem. 
the, um, I the, could see that. I could see that happening. You know, hundred percent, hundred percent. Guys are, you know, and it, and here's the okay. So let, let's let's go back to your area up there because I thought I heard when you were talking to your buddy uh, on the podcast you just released. Um, isn't there a lot? So if the if the elk drop down into the private, mm-hmm. what? are those ranches what's the what's the composition of those ranch are they cattle ranches or are they sheep ranches like what yeah. what are they so 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 a lot of them on that uh, east side and down like into the colorado river corridor or really all of them those are cow calf operations okay almost all of them but you do have out of the out of the meeker side and then out of actually the glenwood canyon you've got you've got sheep guys domestic sheep guys right and they have permits, uh, you know, there's, oh, yeah. there's one, there's one family that's, well, there's a couple families, but they're like historical, like been there forever families, you know, probably their great, great grandpa homesteaded some of that country or whatever. And they've got big domestic sheep permits and those, those run in the flat tops, but they're not wintering those sheep down on the river there. They're either down in the Canyon or back on the Meeker side is where I've seen them bringing them down, but they, they run big bands of sheep in that in 24 in particular. And yeah, it's, that will be, that'll be interesting, Chris. I don't know. How, yeah. Like I, I, so up in the Vale area, they, there's numbers of those sheep families that yeah. have, that, that have a sheep grazing allotment up in the high country. Yeah. They're, they're grazing the Alpine. Yep. And they're constantly moving them, and you know they've got guys from Peru or Argentina. Yeah, yeah, they got they got hurt they got herders with them. Yeah, yeah, you know they're and those they're... guys. Those guys are predator killing machines, man. Oh yeah, they have to be. <laughs> but that's on. But that's but that's on a coyote that right. they that they have the legal authority to to yeah, do yeah, or, or yeah or bears, or or, or bears. So yeah, but they're running. You know the propane cannons. They they've got the dogs, and they're out there patrolling, but. They're not going to have the ability, I don't think, to just yeah. lay a wolf down as soon as a wolf show, you know, a pack of wolves shows up in their their grazing allotment up in the high country. You know, they're going to have to have the flattery and the, all the non-lethal. Yeah. Non-lethal. Like you can, they were talking about where in some places, Idaho, they all of a sudden one night there would be a hundred sheep dead, like yeah, yeah, yeah. just wiped through. So I don't know how some of these great these livestock and, and, and trust me some of you that are yelling into your phone right now i know that some of you hate those people that graze on public lands federal public lands and you're yeah. going good get rid of the damn thing blah, blah, blah. okay yeah. that's fine but you're talking about uh your your economic you know footprint it's, i don't care what you think about those people that are up there grazing on the federal public lands but i don't know how yeah. they're going to manage that up there number one but number two if you look at what you're talking about, Meeker, that area uh, in the low country, not, well, that's still ground zero where they're where they're releasing yeah. the wolves. So you're oh, telling yeah. me like a pack of wolves finds that sheep country? That's like kids in a plate. Like, yeah, I, 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 I don't. You know, it's. I'll be honest with you, Chris. So that that conversation. Um, of all this stuff, I think I can keep like a, a smile on my face and like, and like, you know, think about it and, and think about, you know, speculation with, with kind of, with it being kind of fun to discuss, but that one's hard for me, man. Cause I know, I know these families. Um, and one, they're, they're all really good people and, you know, they've done it forever. And, 
I don't know the answer because I because there there's no way they're not going to you know this like whole like shoot shovel shut up stuff that's not on the that's not on the the menu for them to do because the implications for that are are life ruining for oh, yeah. for livestock so that's not going to happen I, I you know or whatever it's going to be almost non-existent so it's not a lot of people a lot of probably listeners are like well that's what'll happen now i don't think so there's too much there, there's way too much of a um a downside for them so operating wise I, go ahead and, and, and there's going to be a freaking you you think there's a magnifying glass on some of that stuff now like oh yeah you you want to know the size of the magnifying glass that's going to be on these producers because it's not just the agency the wolf right. ad, I mean, the, given the fact that in the, the testimony last week, or well, I guess, yeah, yeah, the 22nd, given the testimony, the, the woman got up there and just read off on the, the CPW Facebook page. She went down through like, here's here's a comment, shoot them, kill every wolf, shoot, shovel, yeah, and yeah. shut up, and blah, blah. And these are people that are put, you know, these are jackasses that are on yeah, a, idiots, a, a yeah. CPW public Facebook page writing, like, you don't think. I mean, activists lost their ever living shit. You don't think that yeah, yeah. the wolf advocates are going to be out there just patrolling like oh crazy, yeah, just yeah, looking they're... for someone to crucify? No, no, yeah, no I, yeah, totally. So, so this is going to be an issue one because, like you say, just the mechanics of it. Like a herd of domestic sheep up in the high country are like bait. You know, what I mean, they bring in any predator, man. Like they and and bear, like bears. You know, you hear all. I hear stories. Some of these guys is like bears, like black bears, trouncing through and just swiping sheep. You know, so I mean, a group of wolves, no problem. They're going to have a real a real issue. Um, but something something you alluded to, and I, I I'll say this in the context that I hate domestic sheep when I'm hunting. Like I, I can deal with cattle. I'm from a cattle family, so I'm probably biased there. But in general. Cattle are not that annoying to me in the high country. Sheep, I hate them. Like domestic sheep, like when people call them range maggots, like, yeah, that's like what I think too. I do not like them. I, and I do feel like they affect the hunting, whatever. But I can look beyond that in the context of the forest, you know, Chris, because I, I think that hunters are very misguided by always being conflictual with the livestock guys. Um, I, I think there's things that we for sure are going to disagree on. Like they're, you know, they're, they're trying to make a living. They're going to, they're going to push it on the forest. You know, that's a resource that's, you know, probably decent economics for them to graze on the forest, all that. Obviously they're going to push it. They, it. There needs to be enforcement around that or whatever, but to have this mentality that I don't give a crap what happens to the livestock guys from a hunter's perspective, I, I you know, and you may disagree with me on this. But I think that's just is back to this multi-use thing, man. If you if you think it's okay for just all that to be pulled off of the forest, like it hunting's next in my mind. I mean, well, I, I you know. So I go ahead, man. No, I, I no, I, I agree with you hundred percent. It doesn't matter what I, I'm with you too. I, when I was in high country camp and and I could hear the yeah, super the annoying. because <laughs> they they move them they, and they they do they just like move across the land. Yeah, they I, keep them I, high know, density. Yeah, yeah I, I know. I'm like shit. I've got two days. <laughs> I, they're they're going to be here in two days. It's like son of a bitch. Because if yeah. nothing else, I don't like sitting in my camp and at two o'clock in the morning, boom. Yeah, yeah. The, the air cannons yeah. going off and the dogs running around and I hear the clinkity clinkity clink clinkity clink clinkity. <laughs> it's like son of a bitch. Yeah. So I'm the same sure. way. But yeah. this is the thing, and and this is kind of I don't know if it comes with age or if it's just I've been beaten down over. I don't know. But regardless. 
regardless of what your value is to livestock on public lands or even the private lands, if you're sitting there saying, well, I don't give a shit about what happens to them and and I don't and maybe it'll run them off of public land. Good. We don't need them on public land. Okay, remember the people that are now in control of the wildlife commission, they don't give a shit that you're on the landscape. Yeah. And they're yeah. working to push you off of it. Right. So if you're going to sit there and push them off, you no longer have additional buffer when they want to push you off. It would right. be better to have a bigger body of people all utilizing this, this resource on federal public lands in a consumptive use manner and a consumptive use value set, because it's going to be very difficult to push a big mass of people off rather than cutting off one little group, get rid of them, cut off another little group, get rid of them, cut right. off another little. So we, if, if we as sportsmen are going to assist or just sit idly by and allow, say, public land grazers to get cleaved off of this of this this pie and get shoved off the table. Just understand, they are not going to be there to help us when the axe or the knife comes down and cleaves our chunk of the pie and scoots us off of the table. Right. I mean, we we, we and, we and and I and honestly, Chris, I think hunters are an easier target. I and, agree. You know, the the livestock guys, they have they have a little more, you know, they're just legally they're a little harder to to fight. And the other thing is they're they're from a from a lobbying perspective and the economics of their business, it allows them to be much more robust re, you know, robust in terms of in terms of fighting some of this. hundred percent. And so I for hunters, they you gotta be really careful that like, you know, we're actually a lot easier target than the livestock guys, I think. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Absolutely. And quite honestly, and this is this is an ugly truth as well, in some of these areas, now obviously it has to do with the habitat and it has to do with the, the rain cycle and everything else, but in some of these areas, livestock grazing, because especially some of the higher elevation areas, because of the, the habitat or the vegetative component on the landscape is often dominated by cool season forages, meaning those grasses, forbs, that type of stuff grow when you have higher moisture and cooler temperatures. Oftentimes those veg I talk about it out here with my stuff, that type of vegetation is going to grow in the spring. And then as it gets warm and it'll set seed and go dormant. But then in the fall, it's going to come back. It, it'll, it'll put on new shoots and put energy into the root structure to store over for the winter to get going in the spring. When you have livestock in some of the areas, it's actually good to have livestock on the range, pulling off all that dead, old, decadent, dry matter pulling some of that stuff off and then encouraging the cool season grasses in September, October, whatever, start to come you with the rate, September rains, especially you get that flush of new growth. That's actually better for your deer and your elk on the landscape and sheep on the landscape. So you can complain about it all you want, but in some habitats, in many habitats, I think there's a benefit, an ecological benefit to having that on the landscape from a forest quality standpoint. So it's it's a multi-pronged it, it there there's many aspects to it there's many facets to it that i think a lot of people again if we're sitting we're sitting here saying or some 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 sportsmen are sitting here saying i don't want livestock producers you know i don't i don't value livestock producers on the landscape so i don't care if they go away 
You're not, again, if everyone in the room is in agreement, someone's not thinking. We need to have a, a, a deeper level of critical thinking in this because there are many sportsmen that voted in favor of 114, Prop 114, simply because they never read the, the details of what was going to happen. They didn't right. think they didn't think down the road. They were like, you know what? I think it'd be cool to hear wolves out there. It'd be because yeah. everybody thought it would be nice to see to have some wolves thinking, yeah. well, we'll we'll have a couple of wolves and a little here and and you know it will be met. That was not what was voted on. Yeah, yeah. So I so mean, the, the thing the thing is, Chris is I voted I obviously voted against it, but a lot of what you just described was kind of in the back of my head. Like, oh, well, you know, there's a good chance that they're going to, you know, there's going to be like some cap on the population. Like, dude, I thought that way. I'm not, and I, and I didn't read it because I was going to vote no. It, it, Regardless. Just, we could go deep into why I, why I would say no. Right. I obviously got a bias, so that part of it. But I also feel like I got rational thought process too around that. But I still in the back of my mind thought, oh, yeah, it's going to be, you know, managed and, you know, it's going to hurt a little bit, but. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I, I'm guilty of it, and and I and I talked about it. like li listen, I'm not a I'm not a resident anymore, so I, I really don't have a say. It's not my fight. Like, yeah, it's up to the people of of Colorado. So I never looked at it, and the only reason why I looked at it now is because so many people kept asking me, like, Chris, what do you think? What do you think? I'm like, I, I, it's not my. So I did. Yeah. I started. I started looking at, it, and as I'm peeling the onion back, I'm like, this thing gets more rotten and more rotten every time. Like every layer I peel back, it's worse, and right. it's like. But it's but it's not because of anything new. Like, well, the Wildlife Commission it being stacked, that's it's an yeah, evolving yeah, yeah. new thing. But all the information was there at the beginning. And I don't remember any sportsman group leading any sort of critical thought on yeah. what is this proposition, who's leading it, who are the authors, who drafted it, what is the 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 proposed language for the 33-2-105.8 like right. and then going through chewing through it machinating and then connecting dots on wait a minute this person drafted it well aren't they the same person that was involved with the lawsuit against US Bush yes it is oh like right. hold on a minute like if 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 the sportsman community had leadership in Colorado that had done a deep dive i think this would have changed a lot of the dialogue and i think it would have changed some of the the advocacy or the the opposition around it, I don't know, I, right. and I and I speak, no, maybe I'm speaking completely it, out of turn. As I didn't, I, I, didn't I, I think it's interesting to reflect on it though, because I'm trying to. You know, it's always weird because like sometimes memories get manipulated in your mind. Fair but point. I for sure, I for sure, like you know, talking to you know, sitting around the table and we're you know eating dinner after hunts and stuff and talking about it with uh, with my, the guys that work for me and hunters as clients. And it, it, you know, in, well, one thing in my mind is I thought it was going to, I just bet on the demo or the, the politics of Colorado. I thought it was going to pass by like 70 to 30. So, yep. you know, I, I yep. thought that was what was going to happen. So, you know, we, okay, we're just going to have to face this thing. But it, it, it was weird because if anybody, you know, everybody would speculate, well, Colorado's different. Like, look at our politics. And I remember, and I don't know if I said it or if one of my guides said it, I remember people saying, like, dude, there will never be a wolf killed in Colorado. And even amongst hunters, like, that opinion was kind of viewed as, like, oh, you're being, like, a stick in the mud, man. 
And then it's like, dude, you weren't being a stick in the mud. It actually said that in the ballot. It actually said that. <laughs> like in you know? statute, like, and this is, this. <laughs> I, sorry, man. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I want you to keep going because that, that's the thing that blew my mind. I'm like, I'm sitting there listening. I'm like, guys, why are you arguing for hunting right. in phase four when it can't under statute? Like all you're doing right, yeah, yeah. is you you walked up and I made this example. You just walked up to a bald faced hornet's nest, just stuck a stick right in it and just went and just stirred it up and then just sat underneath it and flipped it off. Like, yeah, what yeah. do you think you're going to get your ass? You're going to get mauled. Yeah. It's, it's just like, a non-starter. Like it was. Now yeah, I yeah. understand. I, I understand why the agency and, and kudos to, again, I went to school with a bunch of the guys that are involved with that right now. And I don't envy them at all. And they're good guys. I know them. And, their hands are tied, but I yeah. understand why they would want to try to, to like, the, oh, yeah, we're, not, we're not going to give up the ghost. We, we want to try to latch on, just at least hold on to the idea that we, we still, the agency still manages wildlife. Yeah. Guys, it's statute. You, you can't over, you, you're yeah, going to yeah. have to do that in statute. You're going to have to get the legislature to change that. Or you're going to yeah, have yeah. to have a, 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 a complete shift in who the governorship and like fundamental shit, because the next governor coming in, unless they're a fundamentally different value set uh, uh, type of an individual, you're going to need a, a wildly different governor that's going to that's going to appoint a wildly different wildlife commission. And yeah, yeah. then you're going to have to weather the lawsuits like yeah. you, you're still going to have to go through the wall, law, lawsuits like everybody else did. It's like I. Why, 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 like, why are we fight? Why? I don't know. I yeah. Just... Well, in, you, in that, on your one podcast, cause you, you, cause I listened to the whole, whole one, you, you, you really broke that down. I mean, and I'll give myself a little bit of a pass cause the last six months I've kind of, I haven't, I've been monitoring it, but not like real in depth. Um, but before listening to your podcast, I kind of, it did, it still crossed my mind. Like, Oh, it's very important. It, 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 or it would be nice if hunting potential hunting was in there. I was, I've still thought that way, man, because I hadn't read the thing, you know. So, and, 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 and if that weren't the case, if it were a possibility, I would be like, man, we really need to try to get that in there because it's important. I don't see how I don't see how this thing is not going to be, uh, you know, just a runaway train wreck if if there isn't some way to control the population of them. So I, I don't know. It's yeah, no, I, 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 I hear you. I no, I, I understand why everybody wants it. The, the The problem is, is yeah, it, it doesn't matter if you want it. That's the problem. No, it does. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter because it's in statute, and the people that are driving this, you know, again, I it, my my Captain Phillips, you know, analogy. Look at me. Look, look at me. We yeah. we we run ungulate management now, and and yeah. that, the animal. I'm sorry, animal activists are now in control of ungulate management in Colorado. It says right in the beginning. Like, I here. I talked about this one and I'll, I'll reiterate. I'm sorry. This is going to come back to bite people in the ass. 33 105.8. This is the, the state law. Section one, paragraph C or subsection, whatever. Once re once restored to Colorado, gray wolves will help restore a critical balance in nature. There, Right there, it says what the point of this whole thing is. It's yeah. not about having, it, wouldn't it be neat to have wolves in Colorado? No. It's about putting a balance to nature. Okay. What balance? What, 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 yeah. what balance are we talking about? You got to go further. It's like, what balance do wolves do? Well, wolves regulate 
ungulates. Yes. This is about ungulate, long-term ungulate management. Like, this is deeper. Like, this isn't surface level. The people that wrote this are not stupid. And these yeah, people yeah. have been involved with this, this fight for decades now. And I'm sorry, there's so much. Uh, anyway, I, I don't. I, yeah. I, I, but no, I, it's, it, it, I've thought about it a lot, Chris, because it's, you know, it's really telling, like, you have to, this is going to sound super naive, but you actually have to, like, dig in and read what people put on, on paper because, you know, all of the media and all the marketing around this pro wolf thing was all about, like, you know, returning the ecosystem, you know, back to how it was. In the apex predator and this cascade of trophy cascade, yeah, yeah, all this was this was all the marketing. And if I didn't have the background I have, I, I also I could have fallen for that and said that seems rational, right? Um, but obviously, I didn't buy it. You're just being exposed to it. But if the thing that's really crazy to me when I look at that is like that's their marketing, and then there's this huge disconnect. Like, really look at where they're going to put wolves. Like, you're, you're telling me that an a, additional apex predator is the low-hanging fruit on changing the ecosystem? Like, right. there's a superhighway that, like, literally, there's a superhighway that cuts all of the winter range in this area. And along that superhighway, there's an eight-foot game fence. Right. And by the way, by the way, there's three giant ski resorts. And... There's a way higher population of humans there than would ever be imaginable in some, you know, baseline ecosystem. So it's like almost hilarious the, the, the marketing they put out. And it, it's just like, wow, how did they pull it off? Because it's it, there's no way that that's what this is going to do. You no, know, really, this no. is going to take it's basically going to take elk and feed them to wolves. Yes. And they and and you know for whatever reason that's that's the trade off they want and that's that's what it is. I think it's basically as simple as that. There's not another explanation because any other explanation about changing the ecosystem back is total BS. Look, right. look at right. look at where I, they're putting them, man. It's not right. even it's and, not even and, close. And and that's the thing is the other the other the other part about it was you know you listen to Touched and talk about you know and and other people saying well we really need to have a geographic component to the wolf recovery you know phase three like if they're going to be recovered it also needs to meet a geographic component right not just a number of wolves component I'm like you're full that's sleazy and you're fucking full, excuse me you're full <laughs> of shit because this isn't about well to make sure they're recovered no what you're talking about is. We want to make sure that wolves are in every single quality DAU for elk so that wolves are regulating the, the population of elk in those areas. We, we want elk, we want wolves in every little nook and cranny. And then you listen to it with testimony and everything. Well, we need to have wolves in every available habitat. Oh, right. now that's a different story altogether because you've got a subalpine habitats. You've got the sagebrush, uh, uh, aspen lodgepole habitats and in, in the sub but then you've got ponderosa pine habitats like why would we not allow wolves to get into i don't know the sangre de cristos and then drop into the calabra range forbes trinchera ranch calabra ranch barn eye ranch hill ranch tercio ranch hard ties like 
that whole complex, which is the second largest elk herd in the state, which yeah. is largely dominated by Ponderosa pine that, that does go up into Alpine. But like you dump wolves in Gunnison, like they're not going to run up over the hill and, and find themselves in like bull bullshit. This yeah. is, they put that language in knowing full well, this isn't about numbers of wolves. This is about spreading out those wolves to make sure that they're in every habitat and affecting the elk, the the ungulate management across that board. Because they just flat out say it, there should be no death by the hand of man. They 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 do not. Right. Not only are you not going to kill wolves, hell no. Wolves can take care of elk and deer populations. We don't need hunters doing that. Yeah, and yeah. It, well, you know, Chris, I have a question for you on it, man, because I think you're. You know, listen to your last podcast. I think you're you're way more exposed to it than I, I than I have been, um, and I can just speculate on it. But I want to think in in my mind that that what the wolf advocates want is actually you, it, in their mind is some is positive, and and I do see like a little yeah. bit of positivity in it. They just want they want this beautiful animal. They potentially want to see it. I I get all that, and I and I can understand that. But looking beyond that, uh, kind of to the the point you just um, said, how is this whole? Is this an? Is there an industry? Is like the the wolf advocacy thing, or like all the advocacy for these different animals? Where I view a lot of these things is that people want something, which I totally understand, but they can get it by taking all the negative of that something and put it in on other people. To me, that's really the, the wolf issue, right? Everybody that has to deal with the negative aspects of wolves doesn't have much control over it occurring. So I think to myself, like, I, I don't think people just go around wanting to do that to other people. I, I, I have a more positive view of, of, I guess, humans or whatever. But back to the incentive thing, is, is there like a whole industry of doing this? Like, like, like the 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 attorneys the wolf folks are using um all the different um foundations that are raising money um how do how like what's what's internally that what does that look like you know that do they want to prolong just give me the rundown on that because i'm naive to it It, and i can only speculate well and and i just got done uh last night on uh jim hunts so jim huntsman and guy duplantia and i have been doing that three-way uh discussion on our our platforms, both the Huntsman podcast, Huntsman podcast and the Western contours podcast. So we just had this conversation last night. There's, there's a fundamental difference when you're looking at value. This is my opinion. This is, this is strictly my opinion based on what I've seen so far in my dealing with animal activists and controversial species. You've got two fundamental uh, philosophies and, and, and value structures on the hunting side and, and the consumptive use of anything side. There's a great deal of selfishness, and I don't mean that in a negative way. The reason why you hunt or I hunt or you fish or whatever, we we all have an, an internal value set for what we, like, whether it's I value elk versus I really don't have a value for mule deer or, you know, some people love running mountain lions with dogs. Mm-hmm. Me personally, I, I have... Uh, my dog, I you know, bird hunt with him. I love watching my dog bird hunt. I love bird hunting with him. And I'm only a bird hunter because of him. Like I, I wouldn't go out yeah. there and kick grasslands just to try to get a, I don't give a crap about pheasant. I give a yeah, crap yeah. about watching him hunt, you know, yeah, and, sure. and, you know, so I understand that, but I, I have zero, 
I probably will never kill a mountain lion, run dogs on a mountain lion. I, I don't have that value set. So we yeah, all yeah. have an intrinsic individual reason for what we hunt, why we hunt fundamentally, and then what we hunt. And then our hunting efforts are still individualistic. I, I, I'm focusing on my hunt. And quite honestly, if I know that you're going to be hunting in the same over-the-counter unit that I am or any unit I am, well, I'm not going to yeah. share information with you. Like, cause I like, right. I need to, so it's a very intrinsically self-centered, um, focused value set. Right. Whereas if you look at the value set of the activists, it's, it's, it's external. And quite honestly, and, and Jim or Guy, it's a, it's a, they, it's, it's a cause because they, they have a, an intrinsic value for something outside of them that they're not, they're not consuming. They're not partaking in it. They're, they're getting, they're on the outside. So for us, we're in the game. Like we mm -hmm. are, we are there going toe to toe with elk. We are going toe to toe with deer or whatever. So we're in the system engaging it. For their value set, they are, and they believe we should be outside of it. Yeah, they should, like to they like to think they're outside of it, but yes, they're not. But yeah, yes. yeah. But so yeah, yeah agree, agreed. They're outside yeah. of it, and they want this thing. And there's a reason why it's a lot of women that are involved with these type of advocacy stuff, because women tend to be more nurturing, more caring. Sure. And and it's a genetic predisposition. So they see an an, an imperiled quote unquote or a thing at risk, a, a thing of beauty, a thing of awe, a thing that that captives captivates the imagination. They they see this, and then they're like, "Oh, it's at risk." I, I am going to extra. My value set is for this external thing, and it builds into this cause. This this almost religious type of we're going to rally. And we are going to affect and we're going to save and we're going to put our arms around and, and make it all good and, and holy. And what they see is that is a preservationist mindset where we're just going to let nature do what nature do because nature is, is the is is godlike and holy. Yeah. And the and humans, well, they've just gone and mucked it up and they're and they disrespect it, they they bastardize it, they destroy it, they fragment it, they exploit it, they drive it to extinction, or they're just ruthless trophy hunters and just they, they just enjoy that sadistic killing, blah, blah, blah. You've heard all the stuff. Yeah. So it's a completely different fundamental mindset. So when you have an organization that says, by damned, we are going to protect the species. There's a reason why at the bottom of their press releases, we've got 1.7 million, you know, Center for Biological Diversity says they've got 1.7 million, you know, yeah, sure. supporters. Like everybody, and, and the little old lady in Connecticut can get just as much fundamental psychological enjoyment and fulfillment of knowing that there's wolves on the landscape in Yellowstone or Colorado yeah, yeah. that are protected as someone who lives in Colorado and is going to see them because it's right, an right. external value set. And so it, be, it just feeds off of itself. And I'm sorry, they're because it's a cause and because it's bigger than them. Yeah. It's not hard to rally others to join in a singular fight to mean right. you've got more money coming in. You've got more focus coming in. You got the, the drive of people hiring people and lobbyists and hiring attorneys and all that. From the hunting side, my belief is it's been so individualistic. Yeah, yeah. 
that we don't organize. We don't, we don't coalesce. And, and literally last night we were talking about is I, because our value sets are individual, the consumptive users are so individual. We can in then go and say, well, my value sets outside of myself are, I value elk hunting. Okay. So that's, right, right. that's, that's a, that's a subset of, of, of care, but I don't, I don't value trophy or I don't value trapping or I don't value yeah, yeah. mountain lion hunting. So I, I don't care about that. Or like you just talked about earlier, I don't care about public lands grazing. So who gives a shit? Get, get the, so the only underlying thing that I think can unify sportsmen is the idea that we value a consumptive use lifestyle. Like yeah, that's, yeah. that's the bedrock of, of where we are. And I think yeah. the, two things, one, that's so deep and honestly, probably so far removed from the average hunter that we don't at this moment coalesce around that idea. But I right. think the activists absolutely know that is the bedrock of who we are. If you fracture that foundation the entire everything else starts to crumble around and they can start just lopping off chunks of that entire structure. So I think that's why yeah. you, you look at them going after that foundational, the consumptive use. They're always whittling at just, I want to take this away from you, take this away. From, they're just whittling at that foundation that, that at some point sportsmen are going to have to coalesce around. Can we just damn well protect this consumptive use lifestyle? And again, the conversation from last night was, Unfortunately, I don't think it's going that deep, that deep fundamental base, I don't think is going to rise to the fourth thought of our consumptive use collective brains until it's way too late. Like, right, like right. when when we've we've lost 90% of everything, and all of a sudden we're faced with just grasping on to the last little straws of anything we can hold on to. At that yeah, point, yeah. at that point, you're done. We we, we need to be yeah, doing, yeah. We, we sportsmen need to be doing what the activists are doing. And we need to start externalizing our value set on the landscape and unifying. I, you heard me say, I, I don't, the days of hobby slash recreation, recreational advocacy, volunteer advocacy, it, it, it has to be done. We, we, right, we've, right. we have got to get in, we've got to get serious to where, we have high power attorneys on our side, on retainer, to where if we even see a little thread that we can yet, we need to latch onto that thing just as hard as the activists would and just turn and run with it and just go as far as we can and just try to unravel. We've got to start doing what the activists are doing. Yeah. You're, you're talking about, like, do you, I, I, I'm going to ask this question thinking, you know, you know who Thomas Sowell is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you go to Thomas Sowell's, you know, uh, his book, A Conflict of Vision, and a lot of what Thomas Sowell talks about is that that fundamental constrained versus unconstrained mindset. That's how people are hardwired. And then we can go right, right. down to Peterson and talk about different personalities and, and proclivities, but just that fundamental hardwiring. The problem is, is the, the consumptive use lifestyle has a type of hardwiring that generally is not conducive to unifying and rallying around a cause. And I yeah, think yeah. there's just like, there's a, yeah. And we could go like, it's this, like really deep conversation, I guess. Cause it's there, it, you know, there's like this concept of that most people that are into that are a little more like self 
self-reliant focused or, you know, independent focused. Like there's a little streak in them that way. And probably part, you know, and then it's, it's weird, Chris, because it's like the whole conversation dives into like, in the demographics, I probably on this issue, probably lay down this way too, but it's like, it's analogous to what's going on in the country in a whole, like you got like rural folks basically under attack. Yeah, it's. Yeah, you, you just you, no. And yes, this could be a completely different conversation. You just nailed it. So one of the landowners I work with, who's, who happens also be a good friend, um, he's he's always been removed. This he just now got a phone where like he's just now discovering podcasts. Like he's like yeah, these, yeah. Things are, these things are cool. I'm like where the he's like there's the, I, I like, listen to these all day. Right, and so he you know, he even said it. He goes, man, I was just listening to you, and he goes, you know, I hear all you're saying, and he goes, but but that's just society in general like and i'm like no 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. it's analogous to what's going on I'll, you're yeah. absolutely right and, and quite honestly yeah. we can talk about i mean we talk about stovepiping and social media and how social media has exa- and last night we talked about the 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 uh what the dark triad that you know machiavellian uh narcissism uh, uh um oh shoot i i just blanked it um Oh shit! What I like? I just blanked that. So you got Machiavellian, ten, you know, ideology tendencies. You got the narcissistic. Oh, psych, psychopathy, and then quite honestly, they're adding in the fourth of of sadistic, you know, basically sadism, sadistic tendencies. Social media is just ex- exacerbating those things and further fragmenting and further like polarizing people and ideologies to where, yeah, it's and and th- again, oh, well, you know, it, I. What's what's crazy about it, and I like I like how you define it. Like you know, the, it's like the consumptive use versus you know, or can, people who are into consumptive use versus the others kind of dynamic. But what's crazy is the ones that that think they're against consumption. They're still they're not they're still consuming things. They're still you know eating food. They're part of the agriculture system. All of this stuff, but it's not that they they have distance from it. So they are able to manifest this that I don't I don't know how to explain it, but it, it to me, it's more of a distance. Like if you talk to anybody who's well, like I've spent a ton of time in Canada uh, up in British Columbia and every like every person there, you know, you talk to a logger, a farmer, a rancher, an outfitter, a hunting guy, you, you talk to a subsistence native who's li- you know just living super remote, just doing subsistence hunting or whatever. And if you ask them like, hey, you know, what do you think about wolves? They hate, they don't like them. They, you know, they, 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 they might value like hearing a howl or something, but in general, they're all the people who have to deal with the negative part of it. And like a hundred percent of them are not fans because they have to deal, you know, they have to deal with the right. downside. But everybody back in Vancouver who has a little distance, you know what I mean? They could still be getting, you know, they could still be getting moose meat from their cousin or whatever. But yeah. because they have a little distance, they're like, wolves are awesome. Yeah, they have, they have, <laughs> they have no cost. They have no cost input. They have, they have no skin in the yeah. game, so to speak. And, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's like, and you heard me say it, I, and that's what I fear that that's that is my that's my number one pessimistic thing about the Colorado Colorado wolf issue right now is at least when I was dealing with the prairie dog issues the the impact the impacts were local so animal right. activists would make a law would, would get in and 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 affect a law 
that would affect the community, at least the people that lived in the community got to feel the effect of yeah, the law yeah. that they felt. So even though they were removed from it, it would be, you know, in this open space property, all of a sudden now there's prairie dogs and now there's a plague outbreak and I'm worried about my kids or yeah, yeah, sure. now I've got prairie dogs in my yard or what. So there was at least some level of overlap of skin in the game, if you will. They, yeah, like yeah. they could feel the effect in this wolf issue. It, you look at the the counties in the the plan like that passed it. It's it's the typical Denver metro area. The front the the Denver metro Boulder to basically Castle Rock chunk of real estate, right? Vale and Aspen, and then you got yeah, Pueblo. Yeah. So it's it's the same counties over and over again that run the politics in Colorado. But guess right. what? They're not the people. And I, I I know I'm looking at the clock. I'm I'm not. I'm, I know what your no, time. We're fine, man. Um. We're fine because I, I, look I at, finish that thought and then I got a question, man. For okay, because because I the people that really pushed this over the point nine one percent that pushed it over the edge, all of those people that voted for it, ninety eight plus percent of them will never feel the pain, or right. or are likely not ever going to feel the pain of their decision. Everybody yeah. else that didn't want them is going to feel the pain, and this is where I said, you know, I've I said. You, the the people of Colorado are going to have to figure out either how to distribute that pain so everybody feels the pain and, and can, or yeah. it's going to be way down the line when if the activists get their way to start shutting down forest service areas where nope we can't have recreation in here because we have a wolf recovery nope we can't you know we can't have mountain bikers we can't have hikers you can't go climb that fourteen or you can't if that starts to happen mm, maybe now what maybe now people are like hold on a minute. That's not what I voted right. for. You know what I mean? But yeah, if yeah. that if that never happens, it, it there's yeah, there's yeah, yeah. It's like you know what's what's the limiting factor? And uh, the question I was going to ask you is, in my mind, why is it that the the economic component of it isn't in itself like a limiting factor? I mean, the way the way I look at the wolf thing, you know, outside of me being a guide outfitter you know enjoying hunting and all that outside of that i look at it and it's like well like the we were talking about the math of like a wolf eating you know oh a wolf eats 15 elk a year and that means that they can't issue 100 tags i'm guessing that those 100 tags if you do some blended rate of the what people are spending on those tags you're probably talking like 30 grand a year per yeah. wolf yeah it's going to cost somebody 30 grand a year per wolf just to feed them. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so, in my mind, I'm like, why wasn't that, why wasn't that marketed by people that were fighting this? What, what, what was the issue there, Chris? You got an opinion on that? Cause to me that everybody's got to share in that pain to some extent, or at least people who are exposed to paying taxes in Colorado or, or whatever. Brother, you ain't, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I mean, this is what my, okay. My, this is this has been. I'm looking for a set of notes here. Um, I've I've got actually some notes on that. Because um, I, I feel like somebody, some, I I feel like somebody who was like borderline passive on this issue. If they would have heard that, they'd have been like, "That no way, I'm voting on that, man." Right, and and the thing <laughs> is, is um, this is this is why I was so down on on the 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 response early on. I was like, "What? Like how? Like how?" And every the issue that I had was is. It, it seemed like a lot of the anti-wolf sentiment was, it was, it was very, it was emotional and it didn't have a lot of meat. It, it was just, it was, 
I was very critical of the of the anti wolf marketing campaign, but yeah. I don't know if they actually ran those numbers and actually put it to, because I I don't I, Cliff I don't yeah, know I, why I don't know why we don't have leadership at the level of like I okay I here here it is so I think it was Lenny Klingel Smith if I butcher your name man I apologize <laughs> um. But this was part of the testimony I listened to. And now I don't know if his math is correct, but at least as a mental exercise, um, I was talking about a range, but let's just say, because there was like 18 to 22 elk per year per wolf, something like that. Okay. So if you say 20 elk per year for a hundred wolves, that's 2000 per, that's 2000 elk per year. So if you look at a 15%, uh, harvest success rate um or no 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 what he was saying was so 85 percent of the the, of the of those elk are probably going to be healthy or, or sorry it, he he ran the numbers 85 percent of those elk are going to be healthy elk not injured or old or sick or anything like right. that you know because there's not that if you look at the pop how many old and sick animals there are in the on the landscape it's it's not like 80 percent of the population it's a small number because right. the activists yeah. were saying well they they prey on this the 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 old and sick yeah no they prey on everybody like yeah whatever go, whatever they can get a hold yeah. of they'll they'll go through the old and sick that fast yeah, yeah. right so that means 17 what he said is that's 1700 healthy elk removed from sportsmen if you go with a 16 percent success rate now again please don't criticize those that are listening don't criticize my numbers here because he was testifying and I'm writing these things down. And I and I yeah. hope I got them written down right. It's just let's just go with a thought exercise, right? Okay. So if you're looking at 1700 healthy elk removed from sportsmen at a 16% success rate, in order to to match that, that's that you have to reduce licenses by 10,500 licenses. Okay. That's assuming full fee increase, not the cow cow, you know, cow tech, but just you're, yeah. you're, you're a reduction of 10,500 licenses. And if you look, and, and again, he ran, if you look at a 35, he had, he had the, he had the data. Or he whatever. started running numbers. He's like, if yeah. we're talking about a 65, 35 split of resident versus non-resident, if you look at the, the price tag of that, you're talking about, it's going to remove $3 million from state tag revenue per 100 wolves. Yeah. That's just, that's just the removal off of just what the elk Yes. So so, uh, ironically, like got to the same number I was saying. So 30 grand per, per wolf. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Good job on you, man. So, so I just, yeah, this is why, this is why Jay loves you. He's like, dude, he graduated from state. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's great. Like when I think any person even people who have no dog in this fight, I, pun intended. Did you? Um, yeah, keep like going. They, keep keep going. They, I'm, I'm, keep when, going. I'm they, looking at something. Yeah, yeah. If they heard that, hey, man, we're going to put wolves back on the landscape, and it's going to cost us thirty grand a year each wolf to just feed them, and that doesn't include all the other. I mean, you. I mean, you know, Chris, the other costs are going to be crazy too. So, but let's just go just on oh. the feeding costs. Yeah. It's going to be 30 grand per wolf. That's that's what it's going to cost. <laughs> okay, so that so it's to crazy, your point, man. to your point, this is what 
I've been railing on. I'm like, guys, this is where you need to challenge this stuff in court because, I mean, I, I think at this point, there's if you look in the Wolf introduction plan, it talks about what the expenditure is that's needed. Now, already the state legislature has authorized like $1 million last year and now it's like $2 million some odd dollars this year to get that, just to get it off the ground. Remember, so... You know this as a Colorado resident. I read part of it. This is the this is Proposition 114. I printed off what's called the Blue Book. The Blue Book for those that are listening, because if you want, uh, if you want to, I can send you this file. If you want to cross post this one over on your side as well. And okay, sure. So, so the, for those that are listening, so in Colorado, on any ballot issue or anything that goes before the the vote of the people, at least they did. It's called a Blue Book, and what it is is here's the issue. Here's the broad strokes. Here, here's what it is, and here's what it's going to do, and here's a couple points that for you know the the advocates for it are going to say. Here's a couple points for the opponents. It like gives you a good synopsis of of like what you're voting for, sure. theoretically. Again, yeah. again, it was it was just I think they did a good job on on the blue book as far as what they are are going to be able to to produce. Yeah, but here's the, the rundown. Yeah, but here's the thing that I thought was I mean like guys, how are how is no one challenging this right now? Here is this is okay, in the blue book, this is what the voters of Colorado thought they were voting on. Estimate of fiscal impact for proposition 114. State spending. Proposition 114 increases state spending by approximately $300,000 in the state budget year for 2021-2022 and then 500,000 in state budget for year 2022 to 2023 for public outreach and development and development of a gray wolf reintroduction plan beginning in state budget year 2324 spending will increase to about 800,000 per year to implement the wolf reintroduction plan blah 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 blah, blah. it just keeps going dude they the, just the committee sitting around the table farted more than $800,000 a year. Like (laughs) they blew through that. So we're, so right off the bat, the state had to re had to allocate millions. Right. I think it's over two point some odd million just for the, the, the 22, 23 budget. Like, so just on the fiscal note that the, that the, 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 the public voted on not even in the same ballpark. Like to me, and then in the plan, it's currently stating this is going to cost the agency just to make this happen an expenditure of tens of millions of dollars. Right. Sure, and sure. not in and that's separate from the reduction in license fees and light the money coming in, which right. is going to be the tune of tens of millions of dollars. So this isn't even in the realm of what the voters voted on. How do we not yeah. have, how do, how do we not have leadership in Colorado challenging this right now going, okay, hold the freaking phone. That's right. not what we voted on. Right. And if, yeah, if, yeah, it, if, if you mean, can't get, and this is the thing, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, I'll say this no, and I'll, I'll yeah, turn you loose. I, I know I get passionate about this because it just frustrates me. Like, okay, so you can't get it. You can't get an audience with the, with the governor to, to, to slow the roll. Okay. Understood. Okay, so the the nature of the the state legislature right now is not conducive to do it. Okay, fine, I understand. Then go freaking run your own ballot initiative. Go, yeah, it, that's it that's passed, what I was going to say. Passed by point 
91% of the vote. You can't yeah. tell me you can't go out there and get some money and canvass the public and say, guys, it's going to bankrupt our entire Department of Natural Resources. Right. You can't get signatures to put something else on the ballot initiative. And then actually, ha now that there's a plan, now that we know what the reality is, you can't tell me that you can't put together a marketing campaign and at least swing more than 0.91 of the... Pro Give me a break. Right. Just, yeah, but I, just the sportsmen alone that voted for the original Proposition 114, right, right. if they went and voted against it, I think you would overturn it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you're right. I mean, I'm I'm pretty naive to, you know, that process, Chris. Yeah. But in my mind, I think that seems to be the logical – one of the logical approaches is – just you're gonna have to go through the process. The only way to fight the thing is another ballot initiative that lets the person who is not doesn't care either really carry their way on this realize that there's going to be some serious like financial pain across the board that that just doesn't make rational sense. And you know what I mean? It just doesn't make rational sense to pay forty grand a year to keep a wolf on the landscape. I I, I hate to say it. I mean. Well, and, and the other thing, too, and here's the other thing, too, that I don't understand why no one's grabbing onto. We just, okay, so they passed this in 2020, right in the middle of the shit of yeah, sure. the, a national election where everybody hated Trump or everybody loved Trump. And so everybody was having this just absolute existential crisis while right. we were all being locked down with masks and everything else in, in COVID and just, uh, so there was a lot of people that were like, I don't even, I, I'm not even paying attention. Like who, yeah, yeah fine. It sounds sure. like a good idea. Moving on because I got to figure <laughs> out how I'm going to go grocery shopping because I ran yeah. out of masks or whatever. I don't know. So right. there was a lot of that, but here we are. And this is why I think it's right for sportsmen to get their freaking act together. Here we are coming off two years of all that bullshit. And now it's getting to the point where we're seeing all the corruption in the government. We're seeing all the government officials that lied to us, all the government officials that, that set us up for failure and all the bullshit that happened in our schools and our health. And we're seeing it. Yeah. Like, there's a, a general sense of angst right now in the general public of, you know what? God damn it. it fucking yeah, government yeah. is screwed us. Yes. How about, yeah, we bring, how about we bring a ballot initiative and say, guys, do you realize that not only is this not what you voted on? Now that we know that the governor, the, the amount of corruption that's going on within the governorship right now in Colorado and all the con the, the controversy around and, and corruption on, on boards and appointments and who he's put, right. like we have a lot of information now on start stacking that shit in there. Like just start putting that, that cloud of doubt in the public's mind of like, what the hell did... It passed by 0.91% of the population. And now all of a sudden we have our Department of Natural Resources being hijacked by animal activists and they're not going to allow management of wolves. They're going to completely bankrupt the, the Department of Natural Resources. Like you can point to the plan. It's not even subjective. Yeah. It's like it's written in the plan. This is what they want to do. Is this what you voted for? You're right. telling me it's going to still pass. No way. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I'm coming from a naive, naive angle of not never running a ballot initiative or anything else, but I. But Cliff, it makes sense, sense to me, man. Isn't it worth picking up the ball and running? Like, well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, like, yeah. No. What's the worst that's going to happen? No, you yeah. can't. And, and we spent a couple hundred thousand dollars. Right, right. You spent a couple hundred thousand dollars, and you tried to save 
hunting and the consumptive use lifestyle as you currently know it, you're 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 trying to save your fundamental existence and what gives yeah, you yeah, purpose yeah. in life. Like, is that not worth trying? Or is right. it we just we just sit back and be like, no, okay, well, we can't do anything. Yeah, well, and it. the other thing is, is it might be the right timing. Just just like exactly. how the wolf, the wolf folks had the right timing, just like you just said, like, hey guys, this these are the reasons we've, you know, this process has gone through. We got these reasons. This is the reason this is just another scam. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But, and almost everybody, almost all the population is realizing that over the last four or five years, there's been a couple scams. Right? Like, like how is yeah, it? Yeah. This is like to me, this is like low-hanging fruit. Like, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's right there. Just pick it. Like, I don't yeah. you know what? You don't even have to bite it. Just pick it and hand it up. I, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> we just have someone pick it. Or are we just gonna let it wither on the vine? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. No, I, I I hear you, man. I don't know. I, no, I, 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 I got you, dude. Because this is the thing. The, the other part about this is, and, and, and I'm already getting people asking, they're like, all right, well, if Colorado's done, like, so where next? It's like, and I don't mean like where next the activists are going, like where next? So where do I go hunt? I'm like, don't ask me because New yeah. Mexico has strict non-resident stuff. Uh, Wyoming is, is got strict stuff. Idaho is already getting saturated with what Montana is going to like Utah is like the next place where everybody's going to dive into. So Utah hunters, yeah. you're, you guys are going to deal with, with all this because you're not going to remove tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand hunters off the landscape. And they're just going to go home. Like they're going to want to, it's like pushing, you're pushing water with a push broom. You're going to, it's just going to flow around and it's just going to like, they're going to go somewhere. Yeah, and the thing is that the other part of that, Chris, is if if it if hunting is if elk hunting is so frustrating and and they're not able to go somewhere else, it's not that's not necessarily a good thing. Even if you're a Utah resident, if all of a sudden you know uh, hundreds of thousands of elk hunters vanish into thin air, I don't think that's like a good thing long term for, no. for whatever you want in your your state. So yeah, no, I think it's really relevant for everybody to to be conscientious of what's going on. So are you liking uh, Puerto Rico more and more now? Yeah, dude. I mean, I, <laughs> dude, here's the deal. No, I'm just so, going to stay. I'm no, just no, no, gonna... I, I, uh, I love, and I, and honestly, Chris, I probably got like another like 20 minutes. In yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I knew, I knew you, I'm looking at the, I'm, but, I'm watching, um, watching the time. But no, it, it's all good, man. I, this was a super fun conversation and I think it's fun, man. You could say, oh, Agreed. it's negative. I Agreed. think I think it's fun to talk about. It. I do think that productivity comes out of it because you know you, it's. I guess it's after the fact, but it's still useful to discuss these things and and go through the the process in my mind. But on Puerto Rico, you know what my big problem is, and I bet you you have it too, is I get obsessed, and it comes back to these things. It's probably it's probably a gene that a lot of hunters have. Like I I kind of took off from the outfitting business deal. And man, I've never, I've never been a big fisherman in my life at all. Yeah, it's, it hasn't been. And I've actually, ironically, I always had great opportunity to get into fishing. My uncle runs a huge uh, sport fishing business, but I was just never interested. But I caught the freaking bug down here. I don't know. I don't know what it is. And it's just like, it, it sounds so funny because I've always had like tarpon fishermen as clients, like elk hunters. You know, they're, they're from Florida, they're from there and they're always talking about tarpon fishing or, you know, all this. And I'm like, it's just not interesting. 
right? And then now, like, I've got this bug where I'm like, dude, I might spend all of my money and all my time trying to become like a world-class tarpon fisherman. And it's like so irrational, so dumb, but it's like this weird it's, it's psychological not, no. disease. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. I, I guarantee you have <clears throat> the reason why you got into hunting, you joined hunting is I, my assumption is you're probably like me is it's that intellectual engagement with, with sure. another animal. And, and can I, can I, can I affect your, for me, for elk hunting is, that's why I love calling. I, I want to affect your behavior and I want you to do yeah. what I want you to do. I want you to come to me, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's still that chess match with another animal. And oh yeah, you're going to, you have, you, there's no way you're, you didn't get into outfitting because you were like, you know what? Well, Steve Chappell, I, the best line of it goes, yeah. the, the, you know, I, I, something along the lines the only thing I hate about guiding and outfitting is the hunters. Like, it's, 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 like, it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, okay. So it's like, so you, you don't get into guiding and outfitting because you, you think it's going to be lucrative you, you, that you're yeah, going to yeah. make a, a ton of money. You, there's, there's something in there that, that drive that you want to go engage. Not only do you want to engage the critter, but you also want to share that with someone else. You're doing yeah, that with yeah. your kids down there. So you've got yeah, yeah. that that instinct where I need to have that intellectual chess match with something. Like I I need to engage yeah, yeah. something. And so now it's like, oh, this is my outlet. I, I talked about yeah, yeah. this with with when I lived in in Berthoud. Colorado's great, but your your seasons are limited on what you can do. And what, I never had a value for waterfowl hunting, goose hunting. Yeah. Sure. But all of a sudden, my neighbor's like, we've got a great goose lease and it's only 250 bucks. You want to jump on it? I'm like, hell yes, I do. And yeah, I yeah. poured, I don't know how many thousands of dollars in decoys and layout blinds and digging pits. Sure. And like, and it like in the winter, it was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Now that I'm out here, I've got tens of thousands of geese around. I don't give a shit about goose hunting. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You're, goose you're hunting, on a new, it, yeah. It, it, goose hunting was never something I loved. Goose hunting was my outlet. Now, yeah, yeah. if if I was stuck in that situation, I, I would be still focused on it. But that's the thing about fishing, man. Though, it still provides that in, in that intellectual that that chess match, if you will. Oh yeah. But the beautiful thing about it is, is you have so many different games to play. Whether it's tarpon, yeah, yeah. snook, doesn't or even the little tiny little you know the little yeah, fish little that you guys are just whatever, sure. all right. There's so many different ways to 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 just engage that outlet like and and now that your kids are there and and you're you're watching like no man it, it absolutely yeah, i could yeah. see you i could see you going i'm just gonna have a little little hamburger stand right over there on the on the beach yeah. and i'll just <laughs> i'll make hamburgers and yeah because i because my wife and i we've talked about we're like you know what we'll just sell everything we have pick up move to belize or something like that and just snorkel and just do a hamburger stand we'll just have just enough money where we just yeah. exist and we just just toot it all away and we just go snorkel all day long, go fishing. And then, uh, I don't know. So, yeah. yeah. Well, if, it's crazy because not everybody's like that. Like I run into, right. you know, not everybody has that mindset, but you, you know, some people do. And it's obviously real prevalent in hunting, real prevalent in fishing. It's like, it's like one of those things where like people are bored or something like that. And I'm like, dude, I need to like somehow have a few more lifetimes because there's too much of these like fun things to get obsessed with. <laughs> well, the other thing too is there's, there's this, and you just said, you talked about earlier about your entrepreneurial, your entrepreneurial spirit and, and drive, yeah. you know, 
there's a lot of professionals that say about every 10 years, you need to repot yourself, you know, just saying, you know, if a plant stays in a pot and keeps growing, it's going to get stunted. You know, you've got to pull that plant out of that pot, put it in a bigger pot, refresh the soil to that. So that plant can continue to expand. And I heard, I was at a professional conference and I, and I heard he was talking more about that, but you know, that every 10 years, you, you know, there's some people that about every 10 years, you need to repot yourself. And I look at my professional career of, yeah, I spent about 10, maybe 15 years in the consulting business and row ecological services and dealing with that. And then I kind of rolled into, you know, the land management that I, you know, I'm doing, you know, habitat management and deer hunting and outfitting and guiding and that type of stuff that I'm doing here. Well, that's now going on about 10 years. And, and I see myself going, okay, I'm, there's limitations on what the landscape is going to allow me to do to expand and, and grow. And quite honestly, we took a massive hit back. Um, to where now that's where I'm like, okay, like, so I'm not going to abandon my passion, right? But it's, it's, it's got to go somewhere else. Like, you know what I mean? So you got you to start making another run. Right. And and that's yeah. the thing is people are, are complaining, not complaining, but people are like, oh, dude, 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 you know, you're getting away from your elk stuff and you're, you're, you're losing your brand and you're doing it. I'm like, I still enjoy it. And, and there's still more stuff that I would like to talk about, but I'm not going to lie to you when I say. There's a, there's a part of me that has gone, been there, done that. Like, yeah, like sure. I, I've, I've got 60 plus, I've got 60 some hours of solid content of elk instruction, behavior, vocalizations, communication, instru- like the vast majority of the public hasn't even chewed through that yet. So it's like, yeah. yes, I could continue to do more, but like, like what's next? You know what I mean? And so, yeah, yeah. Which I think I think's fine, man. Particularly if it compounds on on itself. I mean, I'm obviously biased. I mean, some right. people might look at me and like, man, Cliff, you like you keep you kind of disrupt your career or whatever. But I think if it, you know, it's not like I mean, if you do this podcast a ton, man, it's it's the fact that you did all those videos. You're you know, it's easy for you to be on camera. It's easy for you to speak. All that stuff compounds. I think that's that's my bias. And then back on like hunting and fishing, you know, Chris, like. Like when I'm chumming tarpon, like to me, it's like the wind when I like in the wind with elk. I'm like, dude, I know exactly what these tarpon are doing. Like they're, they're hitting that current to see if they can smell fish. You know, so I think, I, I mean, I may yes. be making all this shit up, but I oh, think like yeah. things compound on the next and it's all, it's all good. Oh, hell dude. Hell yeah, man. Well, I know your time is limited. I appreciate you carving out some time from sitting on the beach and fishing. So I, I agree. <laughs> I've been busy. I've been, I've been, I've been editing YouTube videos and stuff too. Sure you have. <laughs> sure you have. Right. <laughs> but no, man, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Chris. It was, it was a blast chatting with you, man. No, same, same brother. I, I, I would, I hope that maybe we could do some more of these. Cause I, I, I yeah, enjoy the conversation. Cause I mean, that's the thing is being able to wrestle with somebody with, with tough ideas and be able to tackle them intellectually. And maybe you don't come up with an answer, but you at least, you, you at least, chewed through some gristle and fat yeah, yeah. and bone and see where it comes out because you know maybe we are not going to have any answers or anything but maybe someone else listening to us 10 podcasts down the road from here grabs something that they can run with later on yeah, so sure um cool man well i'll cut you loose uh i appreciate your time thank you very much and yeah uh, let's close it out i'll let you tell everybody where they can find you and what you're doing like again i plug the podcast with jay and then your youtube stuff so let everybody know where they can find yeah you. so so i've been hosting a bunch of podcasts for jay i've been going through a bunch of state draw podcasts folks might find that useful 
they just run you through. You know, some of those podcasts are like, unit, you know, we talk about unit-specific stuff. Some of them are just general, like, draw strategy stuff. But I try, I've been trying to do them by state. So uh, those are out there, and, we're, and I'm in the process of doing those. And then my YouTube channel, the best way to find that is just go to YouTube and just Google, put my name in the box, Cliff, and then my last name's G-R-A-Y. It'll pop right up. I've been trying to put out a, a you know, a weekly video at least. And then uh, Instagram's probably the other the other main social media I use, and that's Cliff, G-R-Y, so C-L-I-F-F-G-R-Y. Um, but yeah, I, I you know, follow along. And, oh, and people can also sign up for my newsletter. It's on my website, PursuitWithCliff.com. So yeah, Chris, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. Um, have fun, and we'll uh, stay in touch. But, uh, no, thanks for your time, man. Cool. Thanks, dude. See ya. Yeah, see ya. <laughs>